This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 217. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lom Ramayasha. And today we have another Simulpups catch-up for you all, covering the latest new additions to Oski, Shonen Jump, and Manga Plus. There are about nine new series for us to talk about that have come out within the last month or so, so there's a lot to talk about here, and a lot of interesting different titles as well. So, eclectic selection, a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the time it took us to get around to this next Simulpubs episode, it really felt like Manga Plus just kept like adding more and more and more new titles for us to cover. Manga Plus's goal is to start simul-publishing all new Jump Plus series beginning in 2023, and it seems they're really gearing up for that by continuing to add a new title to Manga Plus pretty much every week for the past month of September and late August. So, yeah, I mean, we'll see if that trend new even continues into this month if they continue to add more and more titles a new title every week as has been the average these past couple so basically don't be surprised if we have to do at least one more cyber pubs episode before the end of the year I, I feel like that's a guarantee probably it could very well be likely um but before we get on to any manga plus stuff um we do have two titles from azuki we have to talk about Yes, we should start with these since these are some of the earliest announced new titles we knew were coming our way and some of the earliest titles that we had a chance to read. And one that I've been particularly looking forward to was My Dear Detective Mitsuko's Case Files by Natsumi Ito. This series is set in the Taisho era in the early 1930s. So, you know, it's a period of rapid progress in Japan, increased modernization, and it's set in particular in Ginza, where Western culture meets Eastern is a rapidly modernizing city and, you know, a very kind of affluent area of Japan, very inspired by European fashion and architecture. And today, of course, it's very luxurious shopping history toward its destination. But, you know, so it's set in Ginza in the Taisho era. It's about Mitsuko, who is a female detective. And of course, as unfortunately would be expected, like she is subject to a lot of discrimination and harassment because she is a woman with a career. And a lot of people in that time are very sexist and devaluing of her and diminishing of her. And so like at her office at one point in the first chapter, it gets like graffitied with a whole bunch of just horrible messages like, you know, don't steal women's jobs and women belong at home and all that kind of crap. However, she's supported at her office by her boss, who up to this point, we don't have a name for him. Mitsuko just refers him to the old cat man because he takes care of a pet kitty at his office. <laughs> but, you know, his boss reached out to her because Mitsuko's dream as a child was that she wanted to be a policeman, but her father really brussled out that idea and called it preposterous. And then later in life, you know, she met the boss of the detective agency and he offered the job of becoming a detective because it was another way she could help people instead. And so Mitsuko is one of the most successful detectives at her agency, at the Ginza Detective Bureau. And basically, the series follows her and someone who starts tagging along with her cases in Saku, who is a handsome adult teenage university student who works part-time at a cafe house. And in the first chapter, gives Mitsuko the first case we see and after she solves it he also joins the GDP to apprentice under her and he is a scion of the 
department store in Ginsta Yoshida's. And he also works many odd jobs for life experience, like being a taxi driver. And so I guess because of his institutions, he's the bane of his family. Kind of a similar way Mitsuko is for also going against the grain in terms of what is expected of her. And that's really a lot of what the series is in every chapter. It is really focusing on people who are outcasted or people who really aren't accepted because they are trying to express their individuality in a way that does not conform to Shosile's standards of the time. The first chapter is basically about Mitsuko helping to repair the relationship between a trans woman and her best friend after her best friend basically rejected her because she wasn't sure she'd ever be understand how she felt. But then saying Sasaku, she manages to realize, no, even though like she was kind of rattled by her coming out to her, like she still cares about the person. And so the two of them help reconcile those two friends. And then we have a chapter about a woman who couldn't really sell a painting on her own name. So she they had to use her husband's family name in order to sell the painting. And then later in life, she realized she had regrets about that. So she decides to make her own career as a painter under her own name. And then we have a chapter about an actress who is like suffering under kind of the pressures of being criticized by the media and the press and the public. And basically is encouraged by her fellow actress that, hey, I can step away from this life. And I can make of it what I choose of it and basically create a whole new life for myself. And even if I like do disappear and go it alone, like I still have a friend who I can confide in, trust in, who who will always be there for me. And so we have a lot of different stories like that, which are all about basically people trying to navigate and define what their identity is in a way that is oftentimes bristling up. Up against public perception or public expectations of who they should be. And then finding freedom in transgressing, in just asserting themselves and realizing that what they want to be happy is to basically do and be the things that make them feel most like themselves. Whether it be like Julia in the first chapter, really she is her most self when she is dressing up in feminine clothing, to the painter in the second chapter who realizes that she feels most like herself when she is like painting under her own name or like the actress in the third four chapters who ultimately realizes that you know she feels it more free to have left behind this career that for a long time she thought she really wanted but now she is much happier just you know living a whole different life she didn't think of and you know yeah there's just a lot of really interesting stories like that that is all just about navigating and embracing your identity even if there is a lot of social pressure that is trying to keep you from uh, expressing yourself that way or trying to explore and present yourself in a certain way. This, of course, also applies to the main two characters, like obviously in the case of Mitsuko as a career woman who is trying to also come out from her family's shadow. Names as identity is a huge theme in the series. So like Mitsuko 
is coming, trying to come out of her family's shattered reputation of like her father being this policeman and make her own career as a policewoman. And Saku, of course, has baggage of being this like prestigious merchantile family in Yoshida's and like having the expectation that come with being an aristocratic heir, but he wants to work all these different kind of odd jobs that as like a rich man he doesn't need to but he wants to for the life experience because that's what he enjoys he enjoys having these different experiences and yeah i think the series explores its themes of identity really well so far through its central pair of characters and through each individual story that we've gotten so far and it's been really really enjoyable yeah i agree I thought the series was also very interesting. I like how, because I mean, like you were saying, identity is like a big part of this series. And I thought that was showcased the best in chapter two with the painting case. Because, you know, that's the chapter where we do get to see like, oh, Hoshino is kind of made to be invisible in her family, along with Saku and his family. And also uh, Sakai, I think, is the female painter who can't sell her paintings unless she sells it under her husband's name. So I feel like invisibility is like a big theme of that chapter. And I really like how that theme kind of like ties all those characters together. I like that that's a common thing that they share. Yeah, being seen more than just a name is very well emphasized in that chapter that feeling of like wanting being seen for yourself as the individual and yeah like the painter and her husband the art are kind of like trapped or having to hide behind her husband's family's name and the expectation the reputation that comes with until they realize no i want to paint under my own name and her husband is i want to support you because i believe in your talent i want your name to be known and yeah i think that was a really 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 great story and the really great encapsulation of the series of scenes and what it's trying to explore so far for sure this is definitely also another one of those series where like it starts off with a bunch of like one-off stories before we get to like i guess a bigger possibly the main plot maybe well we'll see i mean this current case i mean it's Two chapters in, we'll see if it resolves in the next chapter, but this just could be a longer one of the cases, because the first two chapters are all one and dones, then we had a two-chapter story, and now we're having one that's going past two chapters, but I don't know if it'll be, like, long, long term. I could easily see it wrapping up in the next chapter. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um... Okay, yeah, I'm looking at the table of the contents for chapter six, and yeah, it looks like this current case is only like three parts, so. Yeah, I mean, it started in chapter five, so it's five and six, so we'll see if it ends in seven. Mm-hmm. My thought when I got around to chapter five was like, oh, of course, I have to stop reading like as soon as a possibly more higher stakes case like starts, uh, which I thought was kind of unfortunate timing, but that's just how it goes sometimes. But yeah, otherwise, um, I don't know if I have a whole lot to say about this so far, other than I do think it's really interesting, and I would be up for reading more to see where this goes. Yeah, I was very excited for this, and I know a lot of people were, and it definitely has delivered. It's a series of exploring, you know, really well-thought-out themes in terms of characters trying to navigate their identity, to express their identity, especially in a time period where it's a period of change from a conservative past to a more progressive present so it's kind of like a really interesting setting to explore and navigate these themes in mm -hmm. and yeah i really think mitsuko is a really fun character and i think her dynamic with saku is really great i think they have good dynamic good comedic moments together and yeah the series really just balances having some good humor having some really emotionally thoughtful stories and yeah just really strong 
strong storytelling all around. So very, very much enjoyed it and been a real highlight to read these past couple weeks. And yeah, very much looking forward to seeing where it's going with the current storyline and where it'll go in future ones. Mm-hmm. Also, that old cat guy has a lot of coach from Slam Dunk energy. I know, right? He really does <laughs> resemble Coach Anzai. I don't think Anzai was a cat lover, but yeah. That's a real archetype, I feel, of old man, old, older, kind of overweight guys, you know, shorter gray hair, round glasses, you don't really see their eyes behind often, short little mustache, you know, we got Anzai and Sakamoto and then this guy. I really wonder if like Slam Dunk like popularized that archetype or if that or if that's been around before then. I'd really like to know. I have to wonder. I mean, I can't imagine it's not an uncommon caricature or archetype to draw, but obviously Slam Dunk is such a popular series and Onsai is so popular that like that specific, you know, design might have very well been popularized by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Slam Dunk was uh, fucking huge back in the day. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it left like some kind of mark on like modern manga today, honestly. I mean, it definitely did because <laughs> it influenced like people actually playing basketball in Japan. And so it has also influenced the whole subgenre of basketball sports comics and also just a lot of how a lot of sports comics tend to play out. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's definitely an influence. But this isn't a slam dunk podcast. We'll get to that eventually. One, one day. <laughs> we should move on to the next of the Oski editions that we are. Are going to talk about turning the tables on the seatmate killer story by Arasan Sui, art by Miyako Bachi, and original character designs by Saba Mizore. This series falls somewhat into the genre of girl teases shy introverted guy, but the twist on this premise this time is that really the girl is more flustered by the guy, and also the girl's intentions to begin with were weren't to tease the guy but then it becomes that out of kind of like a dare and out of kind of like a motivation to try and get a reaction out of the guy basically the titular seatmate killer is this girl called yui who has developed a reputation among people who had sit next to her as being the seatmate killer someone who like breaks the hearts of any boy who sits next to her in class and really this is all a misunderstanding because Yui used to be this very introverted, shy girl when she was a little kid. And then her sister encouraged her, hey, you should try and be someone fun and funny. And maybe by opening up, you know, you'll be able to, like, make friends. Because she had this whole worry and complex of, like, people saying that it was no fun to sit next to her, like, when she was a kid, too. So that also motivated her to be someone that people like sitting next to. So she learned to be funny by watching manzai and comedy anime. And then, you know, she started to make friends people were like saying oh you're really funny but then by middle school she was starting to get confessed to a lot and she didn't really have feelings for these people so she turned them down but they got a wrong idea of like oh she was like leading me on and we see like why these certain characters think that she was playing with them a little bit later in the series like in the form of the I guess, makeshift seatmate killer victim alliance club that the lead guy, uh, Yuki's friend and another guy in the class kind of have formed. And basically they just misread like her signals of being friendly as like her being flirty with them. Like she picked up an eraser for one guy and 
blew it off. And then she was complimenting another guy for being smart. And they thought that, oh, she was hitting on me. But no, she was just being friendly. That's all she was trying to do. She just didn't want people to hate her. So she just, you know, learned to be friendly and learned to be funny. But... Yeah, so she kind of has developed this reputation, unfortunately, that big people are just misreading, like, what she's trying to do, that she's just trying to make friends with people. And so the male protagonist, Yuki, he was told this reputation of hers by his friend, who he previously said next to her, and got all these assumptions. And so he makes the assumption that, oh, this is a game she's playing. She's trying to make the person who's sitting next to her fall in love. And basically, he tries to confront Yui about this and say, hey, is that what you're doing? And that's not what Yui's doing. But after Yuki makes that uh, accusation to her, she actually decides to want to actually take up the challenge and actually try and get him to fall in love with her. Because all throughout, like, their first day sitting next to each other, he was pretty, like, just nonchalant and non-reactive to her attempts to, like, you know, try and be kind to him or like make him laugh and that kind of makes her uneasy because she has this whole worry and complex and is subconscious about people not liking her and so that's why she was like kind of getting surprised and a little worried about that but now she understands like what Yuki thinks of her and now she's like oh well now I'm actually gonna make you fall in love with me if that's what you thought about me but then she herself actually does start to get a crush on Yuki pretty quickly before the end of the first volume and now is like genuinely trying to make him fall in love with her because she has like crush on him but, you know, she has a very bad job, <laughs> bad uh, time of trying to get him to, to notice how she she generally feels. Because everything she knows about love and relations, much like how everything she knows about comedy, is based on what she's read about in manga. So she tries to do, like, these generic things uh, or cliche things like make a lunchbox or try and do the whole, like, oh, I left my umbrella, you know, you gotta walk me home under your umbrella and things like that. But later she gets a little help from her sister uh, in terms of like trying to maybe dress up and send a cute picture of herself and then like kind of flirts to texting which also goes awry because uh yuki a little sister was also trying to push her brother into like getting into a relationship because yuki he's a pretty like kind of subdued absent-minded person he's not a super social person and he is you know for a long time been taking care of his little sister who's you know very introverted uh because of you know just long time trauma of like uh, their mother died when they were young and then after their mother died their father started to become obsessed with spiritualism and the stress of like that family situation made her just kind of become shut in for a few years and then she just recently started going back to school but still hasn't made very friends so you know she feels that her brother is holding himself back because he's worried about her which is not really the case but he is worried about like how he can help her you know start to open up and make friends so that's kind of something that they are both working on but she is in particular trying to get him a girlfriend or like convince him to try and get a girlfriend and so seeing like Yui text she's like oh I'll text back all these complimentary things and then he has to be like later uh, actually my little sister texted all that so yeah both of the protagonists here are kind of like uh, getting their love life interfered with or held out with a little bit by their sisters and yeah that's basically what the series has been about so far it has a good twist on again like what you 
you might go in expecting of this whole like teasing girl who is interacting with an introverted guy subgenre series that is very popular with stuff like Nagatoro and Uzaki-san and Tagaki-san. There's again the good twist here is like the guy is just completely stone-faced and no sells the girl's attempts to like tease him and the girl in this case you know very transparently you know write out that the reason why she is like teasing him is because that she has a crush on him so it's been pretty enjoyable i like the characters and i like kind of their motivations and i feel kind of relatable like i do really feel for you in particular who really is just trying to be friendly to people but then like people are just making misassumptions about her and then because of those misassumptions or assumptions <laughs> like her genuine attempts to like try and like flirt with yuki or get him to notice her or just completely flying flat because yuki is under the idea that oh she's just trying to play a game with me when no she's like actually trying to be genuine so yeah i think that's like kind of interestingly explored territory and i do think that it is compelling in the way like you know yuki and his sister are trying to both kind of motivate or thinking about how they can encourage each other to like branch out more socially so you know that their world isn't like just them they want to like his sister mina wants to be more of an independent person so her brother can be more of a independent social person as well so i think that's like a compelling relationship i think my biggest criticism is just i don't like a lot of these jokes where like nina is like undressing to her underwear in front of her brother and those feel like weird I, I don't know if it's meant to be fanservice. It's not drawn in the most explorative way, thankfully. But it is, like, an uncomfortable, weird joke that she is, like, trying to tease her brother by undressing in her underwear. Thankfully, she doesn't have, like, a brother complex. She's not in love with her brother. But it is, like, a weird thing to have this middle school girl, like, consistently, repeatedly in these chapters, uh, make a point of dressing in her underwear or, or, like, coming out of the bat just wrapped in a towel around her brother and trying to get a rise out of him in that way. And, uh, I don't know, it just is very weird if, to do with a middle school character so I, I find that suspect and it's a it's a shame that it's a black mark on a series that otherwise i think is actually doing some interesting and compelling things with his characters yeah there, there were definitely points when i was reading this where i genuinely couldn't tell like oh is this gonna turn into like a weird like sister liking her brother thing or is it or is the joke supposed to be like oh she's like just kind of like airheaded or whatever and she doesn't know any better like i don't i don't know she's not airheaded she's very clearly trying to tease her brother that's what i thought at first yeah i mean that's what it is that's like clearly like what she's trying to do you know, with her react, her expressions, though, she's like saying, hey, brother, look at me, uh, uh, you know, but like, uh, it's gross. not because she wants to like flirt with her brother. She's like trying to tease her brother and like make him uncomfortable in a way by seeing her in lingerie and stuff. Maybe that's part of this idea of like her trying to make her brother see her as more of an adult so he feels reassured that hey she's not someone to be taken care of but like uh, even if that's yeah. the idea and that's like me like reaching of like what the character motivation could be like it's still on the face of it we're seeing this middle school girl repeatedly like in scandalous scenarios of like oh she is just dressing in lingerie on her brother, or she's coming out of the bat in front of her brother and stuff and I just feel that is very unnecessary and just kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like no matter what they're trying to accomplish with it, it's still weird. 
And I just kind of wish it wasn't there at all, was my point, basically. But uh, yeah, otherwise, I, you know, I thought this was cute. I probably mentioned it before. I've never been, like, fully interested in this sort of sub-genre of manga of, like, how you described it. You know, teasing girl flirts with introverted guy. I don't have anything against, I guess, that subgenre. It's just not a type of series that I've been, like, that interested in reading, I guess. Um, but I, I do like the way that, like, this handles it, where, like, Narita basically, like, at first anyway, like, shuts down a lot of her wanting to like interact with him like I think the gag that like made me laugh the most and this felt very relatable because I, I have done this to strangers who tried to talk to me before where, where like they'll come up to me and like hey what are you doing this and I just like try to find any way to like shut down a conversation because I don't want to talk to people I, I do love that moment where she's like hey what are you reading a book end of conversation like I really loved how that comedy beat played out I thought the timing on that was great his bluntness and straightforwardness is very funny, and I do like that often he's drawn with this, like, very blank-eyed expression that just shows, like, just how deadpan <laughs> serious he is. He's just not rattled by anything that Yui does. Mm-hmm. I like that he, like, kind of no-sells everything that she, like, throws at him. It is pretty funny. I really like that wrinkle of Yui, you know, like you were saying how uh, in order to like learn how to interact with people, she like just watched a bunch of like comedy shows and comedy anime. I feel like that's a really like interesting wrinkle of like a kid trying to learn how to like talk to people and be friends and she just uses what she saw on TV to like try to be a more like, I guess, interesting person or person that like people would want to talk to. Like, I feel like that's a thing that like, I don't know, I, I felt that very weirdly relatable because that's definitely how I was as a kid. Because I remember I had trouble trying to make friends and didn't really like talking to people. And I just kind of ended up picking up what I learned on TV. Like, oh, that's how you talk to people. You just throw catchphrases at them or whatever, and they'll be your friend. Like, I feel like that's a very, like, actually realistic, relatable thing for a kid to go through. Yeah. And it's interesting how that works for Yue when she's trying to learn comedy and learn how to make people laugh. But now that she's trying to use the same principles when it comes to actually engaging in romance, the romance tropes are not working on Yuki so yeah she keep, <laughs> they keep going awry so I find that like an interesting contrast of like hey she was able to learn you know valuable social skills from one type of media but they aren't <laughs> very helpful when it comes to this other type it, it's a whole different type of interaction and communication with this other person that she can't just rely on what she's seen in media she has to figure out a new way to try and get through and communicate to Yuki. And I mean, I'm interested to see how and when she'll be able to do that. For sure. Yeah, I don't think I have a whole lot else to add to this other than I, I guess my bottom line is I I do like this series. And again, as much as I'm not always like super interested in this sort of subgenre of manga, I do like the way it's being done here. And like, I feel like I could read more about this relationship. I would like to actually see where it goes. Like, I I think they have a cute dynamic. And I don't know, I'd, I'd probably read more if I if I just kind of needed something to read. Like, I, I, I would not say no to more of this. Yeah, I find Yui a compelling character. I think that Yuki is a very funny character and a very sweet character with his relationship uh, with his sister and how they're both trying to encourage each other or try and find a way to help each other like open up more socially and not realizing how how the other really feels about the, each other. And, you know, going into this, 
I wasn't the most excited to read it because I did have this assumption as, oh, it's going to be another one of these series in these genre, which I ended up enjoying most of those type of series. But still, it's like, well, it's another one like this. I know what to expect. And this one doesn't look like it has the most interesting, like, hook to it. Like, this idea of, like, oh, this girl is, like, the seatmate killer, but, oh, she's gonna get rattled by her seatmate this time, and she's the one who's gonna get flushed this time. But actually, I appreciated that it subverted my expectations because, no, that's not what she is intending to do, but then it becomes that because she genuinely, you know, becomes motivated to convince this guy to, like, fall in love with her because she has gotten a crush and is falling in love with him. So I like that twist on things. I think it makes the character more likable and relatable. And, yeah, I mean, I think if you're a fan of, like, Kagus on in particular, like, kind of the psychological like aspect of, like, trying like this, these people who like are just completely oblivious to social interactions or communicating with people trying to convince another person to like them or get them to say that they like them and that they're in love with them. I think this is a very similar type of uh, dynamic in series. So I think if you're a fan of Kaguya-sama, you would enjoy this. Uh, and in general, yeah, if you this is a really charming rom-com so far, which is the one caveat that I I'm uncomfortable and unsure of like what the intention is when it comes to to like how Mina Yuki's sister is presented but yeah even so like the character of her himself uh I think is is okay and has a decent dynamic with Yuki to her brother so yeah we'll see yeah there could be something there yeah I mean there is something there clearly because we we, we have explained that she wants to help her brother in the same way her brother wants to help her so it's a sweet dynamic it's just that we could do without like her dressing and only underwear under her apron or coming again like all these like moments of like why is she in set skimpy clothing at home all the time and in particular trying to tease her brother with it it's, it's a, a weird thing i could really do without the idea of entertaining any possibility that like oh she might like her brother or whatever you know i yeah i mean it's not even presenting that because we know that she doesn't like her brother romantically she wants to hook him up but like it's just again just weird seemingly fan service with an underage middle school girl and it's like i do not need this this is detracting from what is good about this series i'm just saying i I don't like it that the series presented that possibility at all even if that's not what it turned out to be sure i mean we can definitely get the idea because of like unfortunately uh, how common that trope is yeah, that's really unfortunate. Um, but no, yeah, I can relate to Narita a little bit too much because, again, I am definitely the kind of person who, again, if a stranger talks to me, I'll just be like, "Can you? Can you, I? I? I don't. I don't like talking to strangers, and I like Dr. Pepper." So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Naruto, in many respects and how he interacts as a move, I definitely think I relate to Yuki and her anxiety of like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this person is not reacting the way I, I think they are. Uh, I'm getting very uncomfortable about that and trying to find different ways to try and get people comfortable, and like know that they like me and all that stuff, you know, and feeling like just to learn how to communicate with people. So I re- again, I really found like Yui's uh, character very, very relatable and compelling. So I think that is like a huge point of appeal to the series. So yeah, I ended up really liking this one. And I think, yeah, again, both Oz Keys new additions, very strong recommendations. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I would definitely recommend like checking both of these out. Again, I think Dear Detective is the one I'm most likely to go back to more immediately, but you know, I wouldn't mind going back to Seatmate Killer at some point. It's definitely one of those series where like, I don't feel the need to like constantly keep up with it. But like, if I was in the mood and I was like, oh, I want to visit my friends Narita and Yui, what are they up to? Like I'd, I'd open up a chapter on Azuki and check back in maybe every once in a while. Mm-hmm, for sure. But yeah, moving from one rom-com to another, or at least like a mixed rom-com battle series in the another, we'll shift to our Shonen Jump series now. And we'll start off with Tokyo Demon Bride Story by Tadaichi Nakama. And this series is kind of like Nisekoi with uh, demons. You know, maybe Nisekoi mixed with Love Rush. It's like if Nisekoi were more like Demon Slayer. I feel like Nisekoi X Love Rush is actually more. But I mean, there are demons in it. There's a joke about, hey, is that Demon Slayer cosplay in the very first chapter? So. This demon's going to slay you. <laughs> that made me laugh really hard. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, it's about this guy called Jinka. He and his sisters, they live in this really big house that they've inherited from their grandfather, who themselves uh, inherited from like friends of theirs that like got in on a trip to their hometown. So there's a whole backstory there. But basically, in addition to inheriting this house, they also inherited his deadbeat dad's debt of like 3 million yen. And they were able to pay back like half of it so far, thanks to his sister Matsuri's last job. But like he still is working pretty much every day for the past three years of his life to earn money to help support his family and to pay off their debt. But 10 years prior to the beginning of the story, he visited his grandpa in like a mountains, the Oka of the mountains, and he saved the life of this demon girl, Manaka. I rediscovered her body unconscious after drowning and performed CPR amount to mount on her. And then they became friends. And a little bit later, he proposed to her by Mountain Stream, like right before he left back for home and basically forgot about her for a decade. But she didn't forget. And so she basically waited 10 years until she came of age to seek him out and come to Tokyo to marry him or at least sign this contract of cohabitation with him. And she basically does manage to succeed in that by the end of the first chapter. And so now that she is stuck living with Jinta for the next year, or Jinta is stuck living with her rather for the next year. But basically, in addition to Manaka, other demons and supernatural creatures, other spirits are also coming to Tokyo because they are seemingly drawn on by Jinta's blood because he's a sacred blood, a special type of blood that attracts spirits to him. And he hadn't had problems with spirits for up till now because his house had been protected and he'd been protected by this powerful charm, but the charm is now kind of just decayed. So spirits are able to like just come and run amok around him. In addition to that, there is something going on in the world where a lot of spirits are crossing into the human world from the other world thanks to a secret bridge and you know it's because of unusual phenomenon on the other world that has allowed these spirits to enter the human world and in addition to that there seems to be some big bad thing that it's in the human world now the border between the other world and the human world is starting to falter there's all this whole thing in the background about the worlds of the spirits and the worlds of humans starting to merge and intersect in a way and there seems to be something behind that but the immediate story is just that Jinta and Minaka basically kind of team up around 
Tokyo to start investigating and solving like supernatural mishappenings that are being caused by spirits. They're basically hired on by one of Jinto's bosses, a cafe owner, Mr. Shihachi, to kind of like solve these problems all around Tokyo and the city's mysteries. And that's basically the premise of the series so far. And I mentioned my brief thoughts on it when we covered the news of it a little while ago for the September news episode. But yeah, I think that the protagonists are overall likable. I think Jinka is a generally likable dude who, you know, has some good heroic qualities. Good qualities are just being just a decent person that makes him likable. Like, I think in the third, fourth chapter, fourth chapter in particular, when, you know, he counters the frog spirit again and basically stands up for her at, like, their abusive, like, factory job and, like, a bunch of boxes were going to fall on her and the boss was claiming her for being inattentive and he's, like, standing up to the boss and saying, hey, I think you meant to apologize to her. Yeah, that guy's not a good guy. Yeah, that factory boss guy sucks. I mean, abusive factory managers, bosses. Uh, unfortunate reality in that industry. Yeah, there's a there's literally a point she brings up where it's like, oh, he makes me work overtime without like having me clock it out. And I'm like, hmm, that's not great. <laughs> no, very exploitative. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so again, we have like moments like that that show up. Hey, this guy's pretty likable. And then Monaka is fun. I think she's a little over-possessive in a way that's like not endearing. She's like very uh, protective ginger to the point that she's like <laughs> wanting to her immediate reaction to any other woman getting close to him is like to try and slay them and like being really, really jealous. And I think that's a gag to can wear it thin. It was funny in the first chapter when she was, like, misunderstanding that his sister was, like, another woman close to him. And, you know, the sister... It was funny because the sister monster he was just, like, no-selling her. is like, being like, oh, you're cute. That's a cute cosplay. You know, the whole Demon Slayer joke. But then later, it's, like, her overreaction is like, oh, you know, don't worry. Sort of stuff happens. You know, when Monaka's like, oh, I'm sorry for trying to slay you. And she's like, ah, don't worry about it. And, like, again, I think the sister monster is a generally very fun character who has just very nonchalant reactions like in the second chapter Minaka has like thinking of oh I'm so embarrassed I didn't bring a toothbrush I didn't brush my teeth last night and she's like oh don't worry about it and she gives a thumbs up and saying I didn't brush my teeth eat it too <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so there's fun stuff with her character there's a younger sister who she hasn't really stood out so much. She seems like kind of the book smart ish type, but there is like more background that maybe explored later. But like this family, you know, they're not blood related. And these siblings have only really started living together and talking to each other in like the past five years. So there's this whole thing about, there's a whole family background of like, how, where are their parents? Like, what is their relationship? How did they become a family? That could be interesting to be explored. And of course, you know, their current like very cooperative, functional family life now contrast with like Minaka's experience where she comes from seemingly a much more complicated family situation an unhappy family situation that when you know Jinta asks her about it she starts to kind of freeze up and seemingly is like revisiting some trauma in her mind that you know Jinta then says it's like actually okay if you don't feel like you want to talk about it that's the matter right now so yeah, there's an interesting backstory to these characters has already been set up. That is intriguing enough that I want to see how it plays out and how it is explored in terms of the characters' backgrounds and the relationships with one another. But uh, yeah, overall, there's been some good action stuff. Uh, there's been some good character stuff, some world building stuff. So a pretty solid start for another iteration of these kind of supernatural spirit slaying type series, demon slaying type series, which, you know, uh, it's very prolific 
overrated genre, but this has some points of charm that makes it uh, enjoyable so far. Yeah. I got to tell you, I like this way more than I thought I was going to. Hmm. I don't know, because I think when we initially talked about it in our September news episode, I did just kind of assume like, oh, yeah, this is just going to be like another love rush except with demons or whatever. But I didn't expect to like this series as much as I do, because I I genuinely really like all the characters and I really like seeing them interact with each other. And I also think the series is actually like really funny, too. There's like a lot of good like interactions and like little good comedy beats. Like I really love the running gag of like Manaka kicking all the demons and (laughs) sending them running away. That always makes me laugh. And also people reacting to Manaka uh, in surprise and be like, but like not being like shocked. Like, whoa. It's even they're like, oh, wow. Like, like being like, is that cosplay? Or like, whoa, this one's real. Or like her, his boss in the second chapter, not even realizing it until he points it out. It's like, and she has like a shocked face. You know, those are fun reactions. I really love the delayed reaction to that. Yeah. Like there's a lot of good reactions in this series, I think. And I like that this is like a combination rom-com, like, supernatural demon slaying series. I think those two things, like, weirdly do, like, go well together. I mean, we saw it even recently with series like Bone Collection and stuff. Except this is way better. Yeah, this is a better execution of that idea, for sure. Yeah, I wasn't really looking forward to this because I did just assume like this was just going to be like a straight rom-com and I don't always find those very interesting. Like for me, those live and die by like the relationship of like the main couple, which, you know, I I like the relationship between the two main characters because I I, I do like that, you know, because the series starts off with, you know, the whole backstory of how they met and how like, you know, Jinta promises her as a kid that like, hey, we should get married. But I really like that the series tackles the fact that that's a promise that he made as like a 10 year old or whatever, as like a literal kid and like obviously when you meet up with that same person as an adult obviously like things have changed so much like you're different people it's literally a child's promise like those things don't normally hold up obviously i really like how realistic the relationship in this series has been so far yeah i think that the way jinta is reacting to mananka is actually very realistic and makes him feel like kind of a down-to-earth reasonable person like he's not immediately like oh get this person away from me like <laughs> he's like trying to be communicative and like talk to her like hey i don't want to be in a relationship with you but like he's not being like an outright jerk to her he's trying to let her down easy yeah, he's being considered. He's considerate of people's feelings, and he really cares about doing right by people and helping people. Like as we see in the second third chapters, where he wants to get back his boss's purse from the thief that stole it, and then the fourth chapter where he stands up for Frog Girl and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. again, he's a pretty likable protagonist so far. He doesn't have the most standout design or personality, but it's generally in how he's written. You know, he's a pretty respectable dude. And yeah, I do think that he and Monaco's dynamic are a good, you know, straight man wildcard type dynamic of like Jinta just reacting like, wait, you're doing this crazy thing, but it's not in an overdone way of him like just freaking out about it. It's like, oh, <laughs> why'd you do that? Like in the most recent chapter where she basically tricks a sumo spirit saying like, hey, you know, you're using magic. Aren't you a sumo spirit? You should use sumo. And so the sumo spirit agrees, but then she <laughs> defeats him with her sword and he's like saying, well, I never promised that I was going to use Sumo too. <laughs> and so you have fun moments like that where the characters present us about stuff each other well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jinta's definitely one of those characters that like, he's not particularly like 
interesting per se, but like you said, he's a good down-to-earth person who's actually very wise for his age, I think. And I think the fact that like he is a character that you can like root for and get behind like makes up for that, at least for me personally. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that he really cares about doing right by his family and like trying to help out in the situation of cleaning these deaths. So he's like working himself hard, you know, every day for years. He's literally carrying fridges on his back. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a lesson he'll learn. Like he doesn't have to take on everything by himself because like his sister is like telling him hey you know i have a plan for this you don't need to work yourself too hard yeah. he's like no i want to do this and stuff like that so that's another thing that i'm sure will be a part of his character arc as he learns like he can learn to not take everything on himself like as a kid and learn to rely on other people to help him out and so this relationship where he's working together with Monaka is going to be like a cooperative one which will require him to place trust in her and then to work together you know not him like solving problems all on his own for sure so i think that's a good dynamic to start to explore what's going on with his character and again what i like about the series is also just it seems that the author has taught out the world and taught up these characters histories really well oh yeah so we've laid the seeds for a lot of things about like how they have lived their lives what is going on in the world that i could very well see being unfurled like a good pace uh, the further we go into the series so it's, it's set up a lot of like interesting middle mysteries and interesting questions about like characters in the world that you know I'm generally curious to see how those will be answered what revelations will come with them and how that'll enrich your understanding of the characters in the world so I think that it's just been solidly written so far uh, in terms of those aspects Mm-hmm. And we'll get to this in a little bit, but um, that's something that this series has compared to the other. The next series we're going to talk about in a little bit does not have that, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Well, that's interesting. Well, I guess we'll get to that then. Yeah, we'll get to it when we get to it. But uh, I just wanted to say, I can see where you're coming from about Manaka's gag of like being possessive of Jinta and him being around other women. I can totally see other people like taking issue with that. And I think that's totally valid. But I do have to say, I do love the bit where he's with the frog girl and he's like, like, oh, hey, you should you should apologize to Manaka. And oh, hey, look, look, she's calling right now. And you hear her breathing on the phone, clearly like running towards him. <laughs> I, I actually wasn't expecting that. That was I thought that was a really funny gag. Yeah, I, I just I think the execution of that gag is good. It's just in the principle of the thing. And it's like, I, I just that's fair. I'm a little tired of like super possessive characters. I don't think that's the foundation for a super healthy relationship. If you're not like trusting of your partner, the person you're interested in to be like around other people, especially other people of like the gender they're attracted to. So, you know, I think that's totally fair. Like if you think about it like a little too seriously, yeah, that that's not great. Yeah. Obviously this is like played for comedy, yeah. but it's just like, you know, it's not the most i think endearing trait in like a protagonist i think like for like a antagonist character i'm a little more forgiving like shampoo and ranma but like you know it's gonna be annoying like every girl around him she just continues to be like reactive like oh don't get close to him or i'll slay you and stuff like that i mean see she seems to have cooled off a little bit on frog girl by the end of the chapter so that's okay but she still is like very jealous of like any girl that's getting close to him and i think that you know at some point that's something she should like work through to be like comfortable enough with that to not let it bother her so much so hopefully that is something that is actually developed upon rather than just just remaining a gag. 
I think that's fair. I, I totally agree with that. And I totally see that. I think it's just with me personally, like I'm not bothered by it yet because I feel like they've been able to do it in a way where like every time it's at least kind of funny and it doesn't like bother me as much. But I, I do agree. This is the kind of thing that like I think can get tired if we just like rely on the same gag over and over again. It would be interesting to see if like she genuinely like grows out of that and that maybe becomes like maybe part of an arc for her. I think that would be kind of interesting. I think that'd be good character growth for her to not be so insecure that like her crush being around other women just makes her violently reactive like saying no get away from him because I don't want him to be in love or have a relationship with anyone besides me I could see the series doing that honestly yeah I mean we're seeing the seeds of like you know Jinta a long-term projection for his arc being like hey I don't need to take everything on for himself so for Minaka it could be hey I don't need to cling so hard to this person I care about I can trust them around other people and know that hey that doesn't mean that he will be taken away from me yeah so far I think what I like about the series the most because I guess like as a rom-com is that like so far it is bereft of a lot of the like sort of manga rom-com cliches that like I really really don't like I mean we're only a few chapters in so maybe there could be a misstep I don't know but so so far like it's a very down-to-earth series so like there really hasn't been anything like that so far I think that goes a long way towards me like really enjoying the series but that's just me personally yeah I think we have definitely avoided a lot of basic cliches thanks to the fact that it's been more focused on solving like the supernatural problems rather than any like school hijinks where, you know, a lot of those tropes are well-trodden territory, so they can get tiresome repetition. But yeah, we'll see how the dynamic continues to evolve. Obviously, there's going to be more girls that are going to get involved if the, you know, color spread in the first chapter is any indication at least get like some girl in an oversized coat uh maybe like a spooky frankenstein girl then there's like a cat girl oh yeah that's right girl in a suit that seems to have stitches on her face uh so yeah we're at least getting like in addition to frog girl like street other girls and see what kind of a dynamic they allow to series or this gonna be a harem series and stuff like that uh, I like these character designs, at least. I'm just interested in seeing how the characters turn out and how that'll affect the dynamic of the series if it becomes, like, more of a harem thing. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, over, so far, I think the characters are pretty likable. There's good foundations for the character development that could ensue, the building of relationships, the building of the world. So, yeah, I, I think it has a very solid foundation so far. Yeah, again, I'm really enjoying this like way more than I thought I was going to. Like I'm actually really looking forward to keeping up with this. I really want to see how this evolves and I'm I'm also interested in seeing cuz they do mention that like currently they're on winter break, so I am I'm assuming that they're going to get to school eventually and I want to see how that goes. I would not be surprised if we do get to school eventually. But yeah, it's I think school is usually the least interesting type of setting for stories like this. So hopefully it won't be too much of a focus. But yeah, I'm just curious to see how it'll continue to move in direction. Because I think every chapter has kind of built upon itself a little bit more in terms of establishing the world, the rules of the world, the characters bit by bit. So it's done a good job of having steady progression so far. So we'll see if just that continues to, it continues to build on top of things. Mm-hmm. And and um, I'm just going to use this to transition into the next series. I'm just going to be totally honest. I like this way more than the next series we have to talk about, honestly. That's so surprising 
Because basically, from my just perceptions, from my like understandings, like just how these series have been received uh, in the communities that you know I've been a part of, Ginking Luna is far more the more well liked and popular of the two series so far. That's interesting. Ginking Luna by Shimba Watanabe, and yep, the story of this one, just before we get to talking about it, is that it's about this orphan girl named Luna who you know is living alone on a snowy mountain. She lost her mother in an epidemic and never knew her fodder and you know one day you know she just notices the snowman on this hillside after like going out on a you know expedition to get some snow banish herself and she's like oh you know the snowman looks a little cold so she gives it her cap and goggles and then later you know in a very frosty-ish uh, twist like the snowman comes to life and comes <laughs> to her home and is like hey to repay you for your act of kindness I want to help you and you know when it comes to like normal tasks like <laughs> doing it the normal way by fishing the snowman Ginka is pretty useless but that is revealed oh he's actually a really powerful sorcerer he actually used to be a legendary sorcerer who used to be human and was transformed into a snowman after a fight with another powerful sorcerer and got his body taken from him and soul trapped in a snowman and basically uh, he was kind of cursed to just live on this snowy hill forever because his body will melt if he ever leaves it he can't use magic if he ever leaves it but basically after finding out that you know this guy's a, a sorcerer a magician he basically Luna you know who always wanted to learn magic basically gets him to tutor her and she's quite a prodigy in like just five years she manages to master magic and become like super super skilled at it even though in the lore of the world like magicians usually start training when they're like 30 months old it takes 20 years for them to master magic but yeah, basically after she kind of comes of age after like five years, she's like ready to leave the mountains. But then she like hears Ginka's story and realizes the situation. But in realizing that, she also realizes, hey, even though he can't like physically leave the mountain, he wants to. And so that's enough for me. And so she decides to like help him like off the mountain, encourage him like, hey, you know, with my magic, I can help you survive off this mountain, basically keep you from melting and also allow you to continue to use your magic. Basically, it seems like she uses like a permanent frost spell around him that allows him to keep his composition without melting outside the mountain. And they basically are going off on an adventure to, you know, explore the world as well as to collect pieces of Ginka's body, which seemingly have been scattered all around in little, little pieces. And even a little piece of can like do miraculous things like revive the dead, like a dead dragon in the second chapter. So they're going off to look for Ginka's body parts and get him his body back and also yeah just also help people along the way because uh, Luna also the process of the second chapter really realizes that it feels good to, uh, to help people and to be tanked by others and yeah that's basically what leads them to the capital of the country where there's this union that assigns jobs to magicians and they're taking on some jobs right now and meeting other magicians and yeah that's where the story is and Colton I'll just I want to ask you I guess since you didn't seem to get into the series much like well what are your reactions to it like I, i'm actually curious yeah so it's interesting because um i feel like a lot of my mutuals on twitter people that i think we both follow you know 
I hadn't read this right away. I like just read it like an hour before we recorded this. So I, I kept seeing from people I trust and I follow, you know, people like Maxi, who commented on like how, oh, the pacing for this series is kind of weird, and it kind of made them drop it. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to feel the same way. And I don't know, I, I can I can see why some people I know are dropping this pretty immediately, because I feel like the first chapter is weird, because I'm not sure how I feel about how much it like, a like, I, I don't know how I feel about how much of the story it gets through in like one chapter, because it by the time I got to the end, because like, she meets Ginka the snowman. She like, like you said, in five years time learns magic. She figures out a way to like take him out of that area, you know, without him melting. And he like, you know, turns into a giant and like beats the master of the forest or whatever. And like, by the time I got to the end, I was like, did I just like read an entire series? Like, I, I feel like I genuinely read an entire story, an entire series, like in one chapter. Like, I kind of felt like I, I just finished reading like a one shot. Well, I mean, the first chapter usually is best as a self-contained little story, so. I mean, that makes sense. It just kind of felt like a lot happened. And I'm not sure if there was like any other way that it could have been done differently, I guess. I would say that the perceptions of that chapter being rushed or the story that moves in that chapter rushed being rushed is I felt built on the assumption that oh the series is about this character learning magic but I feel like no I mean the series is not interested in, in this part of the story where Luna is learning magic from Ginka it wanted to get to the point where she has learned the magic and now they can explore the world together and so I really didn't have a problem with it in the first chapter because the place the first chapter needed to get these characters was off the mountain and off the for the world and like the actual training of Luna wasn't that important but I could see like people wanting to see okay well how does he teach magic to her how does she learn magic and maybe that could have been a longer thing and there are series like that but for this series I think it's more about the exploration and adventure in this world with these characters that I was interested in getting to and so I didn't really have a big issue with it. That's interesting because I, I kind of felt like I was getting flashbacks to like and this episode isn't out yet, but it's going to be coming up soon. I kind of got flashbacks to like when I was rereading Red Sprite for the show and how like Tatsu in that series, you know, we just kind of skip his training and just go like right to the main crux of the story. Like th this was done a little better, but at the same time, I just kind of felt like, man, I feel I feel like we're skipping a lot of stuff that I actually would have liked to kind of like stew more in, I guess, but that's just me. I think what helps in this case is that even with all that time skip, the relationship between Ginka and Gluna comes across very clearly and I think pretty completely like we get why Luna has grown close to Ginka after all this time and we understand you know Ginka's character of like him raising up Luna but like also like trying to put some distance between them because he knows or he feels like he can't leave but he doesn't want her to stay behind he wants her to go off and explore the world so I think you have an interesting place of connection between these characters that carries through between like the, the time jump and then, you know, gets paid off when in this chapter of like, Luna being like, hey, no, you know, I'm going to help Ginka get off this mountain too. And we can stay together and explore the world together. And I think that is a compelling dynamic. And I think the characters themselves just have fun personalities that bounce off each other very well. So, you know, that is what keeps my attention. Whereas with something like Red Sprite, we want to see more of like Tatsu's training and 
the thing that's here. But the, also the reason that, you know, I felt like I would have liked to have seen that is so I could get to know Tatsu better as a character. Yeah. Because as it was established, he just wasn't, you know, super interesting. And then the one, like, clear relationship he had was taken away in the middle of the chapter. So what do you latch on to there in terms of, like, how he relates to another person? What's motivating him? You know, the connections. In this case, I get a clear sense of Genka and Gluna's characterizations and the relationship. They have very strong personalities, a very well-defined relationship to each other. So I don't really mind missing like the training gap because I get what I need out of the relationships and I get what I need about like establishing who these characters are out of the, the story told in the first chapter. And so I don't feel like anything is missing to tell me more about those characters in the same way the first chapter of Red Strike failed to really build upon and sell me on Tatsu's character. I can see that. That's fair. Um, I don't know what it is. And maybe this is the point of the series, because this is clearly another series where it's like, oh, we're going to explore this world through the character who is also like exploring this world for the first time. And usually I, I like that kind of stuff, but also like, I really don't know what it is, but like, I just... I don't know, like, if, if there was an emotional hook for this series, like, I just feel like it really hasn't, like, hooked me yet, and I'm just not, I'm not really sure where the disconnect is for me personally. I think that is going to be, of course, like, down to individual preference. I think what attracts me is just, again, the characters are, like, very fun, very, like, boisterous types like luna is like such a optimistic go-getter and she also has a very like interesting positive way of looking at things like when told that oh she can't or like this is something you can't do she's like oh but this is something that maybe i can do in the second chapter when kind of the dragon who's like gloating about like oh i have eaten all these victims and i can recreate their moments of deaths in my lore and whatnot and she's like wow that's kind of sad that you're just like staying here on this mountain even though you have these big wings you can fly anywhere and you're just like reliving in the past and then in the third chapter when she's in Beretta she's like saying hey you know you might not think that you are really good at a lot of things but you can be good at a lot of things. it's not true that you're not good at anything because you did help us out so you know you, you can learn to become even better at the things that you can't do right now so I think that overall just in terms of philosophy of the character uh, in terms of like the positive outlook of like you know hey you know there's a lot of things that uh, you're capable of doing don't feel like you're bound by limitations which is a, a core part of the series of like magic is honed by people who can break free from common sense and can really just express and explore their creativity and so to be able to look at things from another perspective rather than be boxed in from one way of thinking is something that's very valued and I think that explored very well in Luna's character and her outlook on the world yeah. and how she expresses that to other people so I'm liking that a lot and I think again Ginka is like a fun complex Complementer character. There's clearly a lot more mystery behind him in terms of his backstory. We have this very sudden, intense moment he has up towards the end of the second chapter where he's like, no one else should be able to use that magic besides me. When he's talking about like the possible misuses of like his body being used by other people for magical power and all that stuff. So you know, there's, there's more behind this character. Like, he seems like an affable type, you know, very silly type, but then he might might have this sudden serious side. So, you know, that's it's just a, a good building up of his mystique and character. And again, he's just a fun design. thing get exaggerated in fun ways. And a fun person I like when he gets, like, super drunk in the third chapter. It's, like, super money obsessed. And then the fourth chapter, he likes making these stone statues of himself. <laughs> you know, so they're just, like, fun little moments of comedy. Um, there's just, like, really strong 
characterization for our leads. Just pretty likable, enjoyable, along good like spirit philosophy to it. And I think the art is a huge, great sell to it too. Yeah, like, for there's sure. Some really great dynamic uh, posing, like the shot where Luna is like running towards Ginka after hearing back his backstory and is like going to go collect him. Uh, like, there's some really amazing exaggerations of her limbs uh, as she's like lunging forward. Yeah, that was good. And we have really cool dynamic action shots. Like, there's some really great spreads of, like, Luna, like, freezing Ginka back to a snowman form in the first chapter. Or, like, the spread in the third chapter of, like, them doing all the jobs together is just really coolly posed. So, I think the art is so, so strong in the series. So dynamic. I think that's the strongest part, yeah. Yeah, it's, it just helps sell it even more. Just like, oh, man, there's just, like, a, a lot of punch and energy to this. So, it's a really fun read. At least that's how I felt about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just find myself endeared to it. And just find myself, like, I think it's very well-drawn, very fun series good characters so yeah i'm i'm all on board for the adventure and uh, i'd like to see where it goes i'm i'm gonna wait and see where it goes i'm not totally ready to like you know drop it just yet again like i said i just feel like it hasn't like totally hooked me as much as like tokyo demon bride story has whereas i, I feel like with that series i I feel like I'm actually already pretty attached to the characters and I really want to see where their story goes. Whereas I feel like with this series, I like the characters and I I think they're fun, but I don't know what it is. I just feel like there hasn't been like that that thing, that one aspect that like usually really hooks me with some series. I just don't feel like I've found that yet. That's just me personally. I will say, I think Ginka is like the best character in the series. Like, I just love that like he is basically the opposite of Frosty the Snowman. That like he's lazy. He basically mostly wants to do things for money <laughs> and he's kind of greedy. Like, I really like that take on that character. I think he could be really fun. And I honestly... I'm mostly reading the series for him and, like, the good art, like you were saying. Like, th that page you brought up with Luna kind of running towards Ginka really reminded me of something, like, it looked like something out of Don to Don, almost. Yeah, same, like, vibe in terms of, like, how really skillfully the artist can exaggerate the characters' poses, their limbs and movements, you know, have, like, these super exaggerated drawings of characters to communicate movement, motion, intensity. Like, I really, really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I find Ginka fun. I think, again, it's, like, a fun twist on the frosty archetype to have him be more of a kind of selfish type of character <laughs> but of course also still have a good heart but yeah i like i for the reasons i said before i think i'm very much drawn to luna and i'm also really liking beretta is kind of like a relatable oh she feels like she can't do a whole lot of things but she's being encouraged like ah, actually there's a lot of things you can do and you can get better at things you can't do so i'm liking her as an addition to the group and then uh, we'll see how this new character anemone who's like the kind of i guess prodigy of like her generation of magicians what she'll add to the group dynamic as maybe like probably a rival type or just maybe like someone who's like just very competitive and protective of her image but let's see yeah, just just to make it clear, I'm I'm not saying that this series is like a lost cause or anything. And like, I still think the series has a lot to offer. And I do think there's good here. I'm just saying that out of the two, I think I am much more looking forward to Tokyo Demon Bride story. Uh, and with this, I feel like I kind of need more time to see like, if I could find something in there that can like, truly, really hook me into like, really wanting to read more other than just like, again, Ginka being a fun character, and also the art like I, I feel like I kind of need more personally but I'm I'm willing to give this series a bit more time to see if it like hooks me in a bit more. Sure. Overall, I think these are strong new debuts for Jump 
And yeah, we'll see how they pan out. I mean, it's a bit of time right now, but hopefully they can find their audience. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I genuinely, I mean, you never know what'll happen in Jump, but I'm genuinely actually really rooting for Tokyo Demon Bride story. Like, I, I think out of the two, that one has the better chance of surviving, but in like three months, I could be totally wrong. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, I like both. I mean, I'm favoring Gink and Gluta more, but we will see if they can attract an audience and stick around, and hopefully they can. I think that they both have very strong selling points to them, and it's really going to be all a matter of luck and timing. I mean, Aliens, Area, and Smartphone are definitely going to be out by the next round, <laughs> so they're going to have... They're going to have that buffer at least, but it's going to be like, well, if nothing else like ends in the next batch or like just how things will shake out. Like, you know, it's a very tough time right now in terms of like jumping kind of full of series of all like generally decently popular unless like jump is willing to like go as something or something in. So new series really have a tough time. But uh, hopefully they can they can carve their way out in a way that like jump invests in them sticking around. Hopefully, um, that reminds me, I owe you five dollars because a super smartphone has definitely lasted more than thirteen chapters. <laughs> yep, uh, you should definitely, I guess, PayPal that to me. Uh, uh, whatever, like it's I'm not too you know caught up on it, but yeah, no, I did win that bet. You won that bet fair and square. And that means I will have to review In Another World with my smartphone, the anime, over at our Patreon. Uh, so, yes, probably won't be coming out this year, but uh, we'll try to make time for that sometime next year. But, yes, I do owe everyone a review of that anime in particular. So uh, we'll get to it when we get to it. But it is coming. Just to put that on the record, it is coming. I think we should get on to some Manga Plus stuff. Yeah. So... Like we said before, Manga Plus has been adding a new series every week for the past month or so, really gearing up for that plan of theirs to add pretty much every new Shonen Jump Plus series that starts in 2023 to their lineup. So we got a lot of recent debuts uh, just been automatically added to Manga Plus recently. So we'll start off, uh, we'll go through in order and we'll start off with Skeleton Double by Tonkaku Kondo, who was previously the creator of the series Katazukuek. Karanai Kamisama, which I don't know much about, but basically this series is about this kid whose dad was killed suddenly, mysteriously, uh, in Jinjuku, like, eight years ago, and so now, this kid Yodomi, you know, he's kind of grown up and moved on with his life, you know, his family's in a better place now, and he's super, he's kind of content, so he's not super worried about it, but, like, the past is kind of, like, dug up, brought to him, uh, delivered to him in the form of, like, this skull, this talking skull, that by touching it, Yodomi can turn invisible, and also as the other finds out, gain regenerative powers and his other special powers. But basically the skull is the skull of this guy Takuto Yamamoto, who claims he was responsible for Yodomi's dad's death. Well, in a roundabout way, he didn't directly kill his dad, but basically what Takuto is is that he became like this like living magical skeleton through like these experiments that were trying to unearth the secret 
secrets of immortality. And maybe he volunteered for that experiment. And through some mishap accident, it became this mysterious skeleton that by touching him, his body, you know, people can gain powers of visibility and other mysterious powers. But then his bones were like all buried uh, and they were moving around. They seemingly are possessed by like something is using his bones as intermediaries. So like his bones have gotten all scattered and other people are using them, including like an anti-government group. Uh, and presumably like one of those people like misusing his bones is who killed Yudomi's dad. And Yudomi's dad dead caused like a public stir to cause internal strife among the people who were trying to exploit Takuto's powers. And so like most of them died up and so the groups are kind of like scattered now. Uh, but in addition to like being able to turn Yudomi individual, like he also, Takuto, has his like unique power about like being able to create like invisible lines that produce uh, repulsive barriers so that's another ability that Yodomi can take advantage of as well by like holding Takuto and using his powers and stuff. Basically Yodomi is targeted for Takuto by one of these anti-government groups that are trying to like reclaim his body and exploit his powers and he basically you know then gets this little reveal of like Takuto blames himself for Yodomi's dad's death and so he basically goes to rescue Takuto reclaim him back from the kidnappers and he basically gets into a fight which you know he he figures out some creative uses of how to use his abilities and try and uh, outwit the attackers but ultimately he loses and is bailed out rescued by a government agent in the skeleton research division like the people who use like these special powers become uh, invisible and all that stuff are called skeletons but basically, she's a member of this group researching and trying to keep those situations under control. Yori Bata. She rescues Yudomi. And then she tries to convince him to, like, step away from the situation. But he refuses. He wants to learn more of, like, why his dad died and, like, what is going on. So she basically tells him the whole backstory alongside Takuto. And then after he still refuses to, like, kind of back down, decides to take him under her wing and, like, mentor him to be able to use skeleton power as well. And then become accepted into the anti-skull division. Because otherwise, he would just be a target of the division. So it'd be better to just join the division you know rather than be uh hunted become the hunting dog so that's basically where it's at like she had him trained by like fighting a ladder bands water bay which is a mysterious being that can only be seen by skeletons using takuto's bones and so he fights it alongside takuto and manages to defeat it using takuto's powers and then you know they part ways but at home in the most recent chapters Yodomi has been ambushed by the anti-government group's members and they've kind of kidnapped him and trapped him in like this van i guess on their way to the base or whatever that so we're, we'll see what will happen there it's clearly some intrigue going on between all these groups in conflict for each other in order to collect the skeleton of takudos that bestows people like these magic powers of invisibility and regenerative uh, abilities and all these other special things so a good conspiracy mystery action trailer series so far likable enough protagonists I think Yuri Bata is like the most fun character in terms of like she has like this fixation. Like we get introduced to her like shopping the grocery market and being like, oh, I'm going to buy and make all these chicken dishes for one week and I'll become a master of chicken dishes. She does these little cooking training cats for herself. And even while like training Takuto, she's kind of like dozed off, like drink her coffee, not really paying attention to him. So she has like kind of a fun personality. 
I like Takuto's design is like the skull head with like exclamation mark eye holes, which if he wasn't really a human originally, I wonder how he got exclamation mark eye holes. Do you look like that as a human? Probably not, but uh, I think that's a, a fun design. And I think the powers of the skeletons, like how they're defined and kind of the rules that are set forth uh, so far are interesting. There's interesting, like, again, things going on in terms of the world and computers, like who is being truthful to Yudomi, like how much is he really being led on to know, how much more is being kept secret from him, like what are all these groups really after? You know, I think there's some interesting, like, intrigue there. And yeah, I think overall, it's been pretty solid as like, again, a mystery, conspiracy, action series. Yeah, I feel the same way. I thought it was interesting. Yet again, another of these types of series where it's like the main character gets like powers and he meets other people with these powers. And then it's seeming like he's going to probably join this the same group that Yoruibata Bata is a part of eventually, probably. That's probably where it's going. Yeah, and that's what she's training him to be able to do. Uh, so it's another one of those kinds of series. Um, but yeah, I yeah again, I, I don't really have like a whole lot to say about this other than it's interesting. I want to see where it goes. Uh, I think Arakawa, I really like the arc that he kind of goes through in the beginning of the series where like at first he is like a very passive kind of character. He just kind of lets everyone else like make decisions for him until he- Not really. That's not super what like his thing is. He's just like kind of- content with his life so he doesn't like feel the need to like exploit the power uh that takuto gives him like takuto like i guess we don't know who sent takuto to him but i guess takuto sent himself to him but basically he was feeling guilt over what happened to yodomi's dad and kind of wanted to he thought he might feel better if he sent himself to yodomi and yodomi or like someone in the arakawa family would use his powers and misuse them so he'll feel better like oh well you know these this family they're not they're not all good people you know so i i can feel better about that if they like you know uh, misuse my power a little bit that'll even things and then you know i might feel less guilty if i get tanked for giving my powers to them but like yudomi was very much not like that he thinks about how he could use his powers to cure his powers of invincibility but then he realizes you know you know i actually don't really want to use these powers to play pranks or to do any of like these things I, i don't really need these powers i'm pretty fine with my life uh, I'm pretty content. So it's not so much that he's like passive. Uh, it's just like he doesn't really feel like a need. He's just perfectly satisfied with his life. He doesn't like feel like a need to like do much more than what he's already doing. But then when he like is presented with this idea of like, well, actually, you know, this thing I had closure with my dad's debt, there's more to it there. There's more I want to know about it. That's what really propels him into like being super proactive, super go into action of like, okay, well, now I gotta get into this fight with these kids kidnappers uh of takuto and like i'm gonna get him back and i'm gonna ask him these questions because i want to know but yeah i didn't read his character like as a passive character so much as like well, maybe well, maybe not passive but like i i feel like it's clear in the se- in the beginning anyway that like when someone like asks him like hey what do you want or hey uh what do you think about this and he just kind of passes it back off to them like oh i don't know uh what do you think like what do you want like i, I kind of read that as like yeah, yeah, he, yeah I mean, he's, he's content who but... doesn't want for anything that's the thing that's how his character is like he's like uh oh, well i don't really mind either way i'm pretty happy with how things are and that's i think the cure change of like he realizes oh actually now this is something i really want to do and i want to know about and figure out yeah like i feel like the beginning of the series like it's shown that he's complacent but i think the point is that that complacency could be a weakness 
I think complacency is uh, the right word there. Yeah, yeah that's what I he's, meant. He's fine. He's fine with his, how his life is. But now he's like presented with this like, well, no, I, I want to change. And I even though this is a dangerous situation, I want to put myself into it. Because there's things I really want to know. And I got to know now. Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make is I, I think the whole point of the sort of like first chapter is him kind of like growing out of that complacency and him like, you know, actually making a decision on his own. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. I just feel like we haven't gotten enough like, I feel like we're still, like, very in the middle of, like, all the conspiracies and mysteries, so, like, I don't really know, like, what to make of those just yet. Like, I feel like we're, like, really in the middle of a lot of stuff, so it's, like, I really like the series so far, but I just don't really have much else to say, like, outside of that, unfortunately. I think it's just very similar to a lot of similar types of series, like, even on Manga Plus, it's similar enough to something like Stage S. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I got a lot of Ajin vibes from it, you know. So yeah, Stage S, Ajin... Uh, Tokyo Ghoul, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, Jujutsu Kaisen. You know, stuff with like similar elements. Yeah, you know, person suddenly gets granted these powers and has to join the group that is tasked with keeping these people with powers under check lest he also becomes a target so we've seen a lot of different iterations of that yeah i think that's kind of my issue with it so far is that like it's good but i also don't know if it totally stands out from all of these other types of series just yet at least for me yeah i would agree with that i think it's yeah solidly done uh, execution wise but not stand out in terms of the story so far. I think it has some strong art. It has some oh, yeah, strong like sure. visceral like action moments. Ooh, and, yeah. You know, moments of gore and brutality. Like limbs are getting twisted off by these oh, powers. And, oh. You know. Yeah. Just horribly mangled body is uh also like at one point they were gonna crush yadomi with a car <laughs> and we see like the wheels on his chest and it's like gonna go over his head so there's some really brutal stuff that is depicted so that definitely adds like another quality to it of like that makes it interesting but in terms of like the character story themselves not a whole lot stands out too much besides like some aesthetic things like again the design of takuto as like this skull that exclamation eye or like i guess the design of this weird skeleton centipede worm thing <laughs> in the ladder bands vertebrae that they fight that felt like something out of chainsaw man yeah very unique creepy monster design playing on like human body parts so yeah and then of course like the powers i guess have interesting implications or implementations like the guy that you know he fights who like slings his blood in a way that like upon impact on another person it can like twist whatever it touches so like it twists like his limbs it could twist like things around him i think that was an interestingly used power and so there could be more powers like that that are used in uh creative ways for sure yeah so we'll see yeah i would not be opposed to reading more of this this is something that i might come back and check up on when there are more chapters out mm -hmm. but we go from one I guess monster fighting series to another because uh, the next series we'll talk about is Ghostbuster Osamu by Getabako. Another series I think I mentioned briefly before in the previous like news episode or update thing, but I'm enjoying this one a lot. This one is about basically an exorcist girl, but she is like a huge otaku and she has crippling social anxiety. So the only exorcisms she can perform are against like nerdy spirits, like geeky spirits. 
And basically, she goes around and helps exercise these spirits with her friend, who is like a very kind gal type, who is the sort of person who ends up attracting these vengeful otaku ghosts to her. Because, you know, she's like, I guess someone who's kind of jeeks, and that makes her kind of anomalous in terms of like this kind of popular girl type. So a lot of spirits get attracted to her. But yeah, that's basically the main trust of the series is like the friendship between these two girls, like after the first chapter. And like it's basically Asamu just exercising a new spirit every week that has like this nerdy obsession. A lot of it ties back to like this one series that Asamu is a big fan of, and a lot of the other spirits are a fan of, which is Menko Player Bond, which is, you know, a shonen series that has a huge BL shipping subculture. So, like, in the first chapter, Osamu comes across a ghost who's supporting the reverse pair of the main pair. So, in the reverse pair, like, the character of Bon is the, the top and Hizu is the bottom, whereas in the normal pairing, Hizu is the top and Bon is the bottom. And so, like, this ghost is haunting Kaika's room. And so, Osamu goes and exercises it by basically fighting and arguing with the spirit. Like, literally, like, fighting it and basically talking with her fists, kind of literally, uh, <laughs> and trying to, until the spirit spirit is satisfied by the debate and argument but in the process they destroy Kaika's house so Kaika moves in with Asamu and then she lives with her for a few chapters before moving back out but then like Asamu having gone very close to her comes to exercise another spirit at her place and confesses to her like hey you know I really miss you and you know Kaika in her part is like she has the thing going on where she, she's really friendly and kind of stuff but she also comes from like this rural hometown and she's also very worried about causing problems for people like she doesn't want to cause problems for other people so she initially is like reluctant to continue living with Asamu because she feels like she doesn't want to give her trouble but Asamu's like no you're not a bit of trouble to me you've been a source of encouragement and comfort and so they move back in together so I think they have a sweet friendship relationship there but yeah I mean other spirits that they encounter in this series like in the second chapter it's a ghost that is obsessed with rolling loot boxes <laughs> in this like Odin personification rhythm game and so it's uh, like Asamu has to exercise this ghost for like not falling the temptation to also start rolling loot boxes herself so Kai has to keep her grounded by like reminding her that the Menko Player Bond movie is coming out and reading like the plot summary while she's fighting so she doesn't get distracted uh, which is fun. In the third chapter you know they encounter a ghost where like the ghost is trying to push Menko Player Bond and others as like kind of uh, missionary work and of course like Asamu first tries to pretend like oh I haven't read it before so she can make the ghost feel good about like uh, converting a new to the series but then eventually she gets like kind of exposed as already being a fan so they get like her rival to read it instead and her rival becomes genuinely hooked on it that was genuinely my favorite chapter of the series so far that was funny it's like the rivals like looking down on nerdy hobbies and looks down on this hobby but like she starts reading the series and then you see a cut and, and she's like freaking out saying next and it's like no this can't be happening serious like he knows that he doesn't really feel that way right and so she gets super obsessed with the series and the chapter ends with her just in her room continuing to read it and just obsessed with when the next chapter is coming out and like vowing revenge on Asamu for turning her into a nerd too so I think that's a fun character it'll be fun to see her pop up again as a rival yeah and th again there's a lot of iterations of like the Keith encountering like these ghosts with like these super nerdy hobbies and all 
like female nerds too, which I think is interesting. So yeah, I, I it's I think it's a fun, really funny series, really expressive art. Oh yeah. Nice, sweet friendship at the core between Asamu and Kaika. And just fun, like, iterations and subversions of, like, you know, what you ex- how you expect the story might turn out. Like, uh, in the most recent chapter, like, you have, like, Asamu's mentor come and you think, like, oh, it's, like, her ghost-busting exorcism mentor. But no, it's, like, her fandom member mentor, the person who taught her about shipping <laughs> and got her into the subculture. And, like, she's, like, this super famous doujin artist who has, like, this special power where her eye can see people's shipping fantasies and she can make Dojin tailored to their ships. Uh, and so that's a, a fun character, a fun twist on the mentor ty- archetype. Uh, and she creates like these special Dojins that can boost Asamu's power and motivation when she reads them. So yeah, just a lot of fun characters, a lot of fun ideas to play upon, like uh, mixing nerd culture with again, the shonen exorcism type concept. So yeah. Really, really enjoying this one. It's, it's very trying. Yeah, I think um, I hate to call it so soon, but like I think this is like my favorite out of this batch of like manga plus series. I genuinely think the series is like really, really funny, and the art is so expressive and really adds to the comedy of it. I just love the idea of like you know this exorcist Ghostbuster like tackling uh, specifically ghosts that are like like you said are are, are into these like nerdy hobbies and like argue about things that like uh, I'm sure we're both very used to seeing like online you know like this series is for a very specific type of like nerd or fan and I I really enjoy that personally yeah especially if you're really into shipping this is all about like (laughs) the specificities of shipping subculture of like because. Like the first chapter is all this argument of like the same characters being shipped, but people arguing like who's the top and who's the bottom. And it changes the entire ship. Yeah. And then we get that revisited again of like, well, I think actually the Bon Hizu pairing is more bottom like than the Bon and the Hizu Bon <laughs> pairing. And just all these kind of like nuances and intricacies of like <laughs> shipping culture and how people interpret characters and ships, which I think is really funny. And yeah. yeah, again, like, again, just like the, the it really focused on obsessive fan culture hobbies like that. <laughs> in a fun way and literally manifested in the form of like these ghosts were renewing resentments because they're so obsessed and they weren't satisfied with how their obsessions panned out in real life so they need an outlet to vent them so I think that's a fun concept that has been explored well so far my only worry is that it'll lean t- it's leaning too much on Menko Player Bond and so maybe it needs to branch out into other types of series or other types of media but Overall, it's found enough iterations within this one, like, fictional series that the characters are all a fan of that uh, it's made a lot of, like, really interesting chapters that haven't felt too repetitive so far. Yeah, like I said, the series genuinely has been, like, really fun to read. Like, I didn't have any expectations, you know, for this going in, but it's just good. Like, I really love the art. And I love how expressive it is. Like that, that that page of uh, of Mishin desperately wanting the next volume uh, is is a page I'm definitely going to be saving. It's probably the part that like made me laugh the most. Like it's just such a great like full page of like just the like deranged look on her face as she like ferociously wants to read the next volume of her now new favorite manga. <laughs> Yeah, the face game is very strong in the series. Uh, art is just extremely expressive. 
the comedy like face falls are just excellent and there's also just like a lot of really funny beats like in the first chapter of like uh osama punching it goes and saying like read the original work properly you know <laughs> you gotta understand the right shit and then like her like put down line of like there's no bottom who is loved as much as everyone by as much as bond got raised from proof your reading comprehension and come again i think that's like a very funny line and there's a lot of great moments like that in the series where like the characters are just so obsessed with their their nerdy obsessions that they just get this tunnel vision and they try to look cool but arguing over whoever's interpretation of the piece of media or obsession is better and i think that's it's played off very funny oh yeah the bit uh, going back to that chapter i was talking about uh when the ghost of, uh first shows up and they're just like just read up to volume 10 like man yeah i i see i see that around online way too much just 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 get up to here this is where it gets good <laughs> yeah like read up to volume. that's like every argument from people trying to get people in the one piece is like oh you gotta read up to arlen park read up to read the first 10 volumes and all that stuff so <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, it's just like, th- there's just like really specific like online fandom things in here that like I find really, really relatable. Like, like if you're a specific kind of online nerd, like this is for you. Yeah, for sure. But overall, it's just, like I said, it's just really, really funny and the art's good. And I really want to read more of this actually. Like it's, again, it's, it's genuinely a lot funnier than like I had any idea it was going to be. Yeah, no, this has been a delight to read. Very fun series, very charming characters. And I have been enjoying it and I think I'll continue to enjoy it. Uh, again, if you've ever been like, again, just part of fandom communities, I think this is well observed of the types of people in them, types of conversations that you'll find in them. Just exaggerated to the uh, hilarious extremes. Oh, for sure. This definitely gets a recommend from me. Yeah, I definitely think it's my favorite of the Bash as well. But we still have a couple more series to talk about. And the next one, we're getting in a, a little more serious direction. The Dark Doctor Ikaru by Heichi. The series is interesting because originally the first four chapters of it were a mini-series that were redone for the serialization. And then now it's going in a new direction, continuing the story with the fifth chapter onward. But basically the setting is a world in which a meteor, a star of some kind, basically kind of rained down uh, on the earth and kind of let loose like more than 100 million new diseases, which currently there are like 30,000 known in the world. So like that's uh, a lot of new diseases. And so a lot of these diseases are like trans formative or like they transfigure the person's body at least in these first couple chapters like because in the first chapter it's like a disease that you know turns people into zombies and the second chapter it's like one that kind of gives people like dragon like appendages like horns and scales and limbs and stuff so that's kind of interesting and then in the most recent chapter we get like this guy who has this collection of all these people with diseases and they're all like people who have been transformed into something because of disease so it's kind of an interesting like common team but basically the protagonist is Ikaru he's a so-called dark doctor because he's a very dark person like he has very conventional treatments uh that because he creates like antibodies in his own body and his blood uh by purposely letting himself get infected by them and allowing 
his cells to like kind of break them down, destroy them, and then he can like use his blood. Uh, basically, he can get people to drink it, and then they'll be cured. And the reason he can do that without like dying from the infections himself is because he has a disease, a disease that is like one that can't be spread to others, but he's suffering on that he is immortal. Basically, you know, he can even cut his own head off, and he'll basically be fine, regenerated, whatever. So he has an immortal body, and he is looking to die. Like he, you know, is a very dark personality of like, you know, he's obsessed with that. He's obsessed with the idea of finding something that will kill him. So, you know, very much like Andy and Unluck, but like kind of a more like dour type of personality, I would say. So he has all this angst as well about, you know, it hasn't been fully explored, but clearly, you know, there was a person he loved who passed away and then he had to continue living on. And he basically says he wants to go to heaven to be reunited with this person. And he also, there's also something in his backstory about like someone who apparently make puppets of the dead in the same way like a character in the third and fourth chapter did that he also resents that probably also has to do with the death of that loved one. So he has all that stuff going on in his backstory. But yeah, he ba- again, he basically, because of his moral body, he can like cut off his head, he can cut off his limbs and stuff and he can regenerate, he can get infected with diseases and he'll be fine. Nothing really can kill him and create antibodies in his blood. And so that's basically what the series has been about. It's like he's going around encountering these people suffering from different like diseases and then just curing them. And yeah, again, there's been this common theme of like people are are transformed into something else by these diseases. And uh, there's also an addition uh, introduced in the third and fourth chapter, like this group in this world who is like a cult called the Star Six Star Assembly that reveres the star that brought the disease started believing that that from illness is God's will. And uh, they kill like one of the leaders of this group in the course of this storyline uh, but there's also this presentation that there's more members of them out there and the, the character that Ikiru helps in that chapter is going to go out and try and destroy that organization so that's potential like continuing plot line that could happen over the course of the series and then in the most recent chapter that's like starting kind of the more long form direction that's branching out from where the miniseries originally covered is like, you know, he's encountered like this gun girl who that has been transformed into like this giant four-eyed monster because of her disease. And for some reason, Ikru can't cure her right away. So, you know, basically he's gonna try and help her out. But he sees like that she has like kind of a noble like spirit. There's something like kind of noble about her disease even. Because we have like these interesting like fantasies of like Ikru imagining himself with the personified version of disease like go confront the personified version of his disease in his mind and oftentimes like how he describes it as like his disease makes the other diseases commit suicide like kill themselves and stuff like that but the disease of this girl like when he imagines and personifies it in his mind it's like he's seeing it as like these noble like knight personifications so that's kind of an interesting wrinkle to that but anyway basically where the series is now is that this girl has kind of been captured by this collector who captures people or things that have been infected by diseases and like puts them in this like museum of sorts of like living museum and like he wanted to add Ikaru to his collection too but basically like Ikaru and this girl Mu were forced to like fight each other and then he would let whoever won free but you know they basically have turned on him and they're like just fighting back against him so we'll see where things go but it looks like this character will basically kind of tag along with Ikaru perhaps long term as a companion and that could be interesting to see how she has on to the dynamic but yeah so 
that's kind of where the series is so far. And overall, I think the individual stories have been enjoyable enough. I think that a good comparison in terms of tone, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of undead unluck you can draw to in terms of like, obviously, Ikaru being like an undead character who wants to die and stuff like that. But I think it most closely resembles a lot of teams like in Full Metal Alchemist, particularly with the third and fourth chapters about like this girl who is like desperate to revive her brother and is like clinging on to the hope of basically the cult leader of the group that outwardly says that they revere the diseases but like the actual group leader like uses his own powers to basically revive people and stuff like that that is very much like kind of a story that reminded me of like the beginning of FMA where it's like really iterating uh, this idea of like hey you know the dead cannot come back to life and this person is giving people false hope and manipulating them and stuff like that so I would I would draw that as point of comparison and you know overall I, I think that the story so far that have been presented have been pretty enjoyable like I was unsure of like how to feel about Ikaru as a character who is like obsessed with suicide and stuff but like you know it makes sense to you can draw comparisons again to Andy or even Cora Sensei in Assassination Classroom especially with like the whole backstory of like you know clearly there was like this girl in his past that he cared about and cherished and now he really just wants to pass on so he can be with them in the afterlife that's kind of a driving motivation of his yeah he's he's not like you know, Dazai from like Bungo Stray Dogs, where it's like, oh, I want to kill myself because I'm supposed to represent that real life person or whatever. And that's like my joke. Uh, yeah, it's not making a joke about a real life person who committed suicide yeah. and then turning it around and going, no, there's like a motivation. Like, it's a common thing with a, with a moral character where like they're so tired of life that they just want to find a way to end it. And so they can pass on. And in his case, like, there seems to be an element of some sort of survival skill. They're sort of longing to see the person he loved again by passing on to other world yeah you can understand why he feels that way yeah it's not just a joke though in the first chapter it's presented as a joke that he tries to get this girl to hang him or whatnot and that he's like gleeful about the idea of like a disease that could potentially kill him or like when someone suggests hey i'm gonna kill you he's like excited about it. like <laughs> yes uh, i i would very much welcome that yeah, I, I guess just to get into my thoughts, um, I wasn't sure how I how to feel about the series at first, because I genuinely thought from the first chapter, like, oh, this is going to be a series about this guy, like, going around and curing all these people of, like, the same, like, zombification disease. Like, I thought if this was going to be, like, a zombie series all throughout, but no, it is. And I'm not saying it's necessarily like this in tone, because obviously both these series are very different. But in my mind, I thought, oh, this is like kind of a fucked up mushishi, where it's like this guy going around, like curing all these diseases and like getting into these different situations where he kind of like has to end up helping people, but also still trying to like do this for his gain as well, because obviously he has something that he wants. So it it, it kind of reminds me of that in like structure. Obviously, again, both the series are very different. But yeah, I didn't know that he was going to be going like from town to town dealing with people with different diseases. I think that's what keeps it fresh for me. And Ikaru as a character, I think is really, really, again, I wasn't sure about him at first, but like, I think he he kind of grows on you. Like I do, I do genuinely really like the moments where like he gets excited about maybe finding a disease that might actually finally kill him because he's just so tired of living. And then when he finds out like, oh, that leads a dead end, he gets like legitimately upset. Like, what the fuck? Dude, you say you were going to to kill me why aren't you gonna kill me like he gets so upset and i i really love his reactions uh, to that kind of thing yeah he's a good person ultimately though he's it's not like he's completely like a, a just or like a completely like kind-hearted person 
like he it can be like spiteful like in the second chapter of course with the king who has like been afflicted with his dragon disease and out of spite infected like so much of his people uh with the disease too uh, as a means of like having power over them like at the end of that when the king is not going to keep up his end of the the bargain and he's like saying oh i'm gonna make you my prisoner doctor and never let you die he like is completely walks away from the situations like well you broke your promise i'm done with you and i'm not responsible for what happens next <laughs> and the process of like curing the king he also made the effort to also have it so at the same time all the people in the country would also get cured at the same time because he turned his blood into smoke and it became like this rain uh, and smoke that just kind of went around the country and so cured everyone also and so now like all those people are cured and they're about to stage this rebellion and execute the king and like he's like yeah i mean i have nothing more to do with you i what happens to the people I cure after I cure them is not any of my concern. But it's also like a justice thing of like, well, this king was clearly like a corrupt tyrant, as was explained to him. So, you know, he's not going to interfere in like the people of the country, like getting justice on him. And then later, of course, in the third and fourth chapters, he takes it very seriously that this character, who is like the cult reader, Willis Ron, has been manipulating the dead by like using his powers to basically puppet corpses and try and give people false hope that the people that they're loved are still alive and so like he very much makes a person for him of like defeating him and uh, also like saying that he you know was very spiteful towards him and then also like at the end like when the girl is thinking about like committing to herself he's like saying like well I could help you with that but don't you want to learn something else more first and then basically leads her to find out that her brother was like murdered by the six star assembly and then like she basically murders those guys by beating them over the head with a pipe and like uh, he's like cool with that like in his philosophy is like you know some people are better off dead is i think the phrase he exactly says at the end of the second chapter so he's not a completely like moral person in terms of like oh i believe in the value of life just as a whole but he's like no bad people they can die and i I'll cure people of diseases but then people who are bad people like I don't mind if they get their just desserts. Yeah, it's not my responsibility what happens to you afterwards. Like I, I think that's fair. Yeah, I I do think that the third and fourth chapter I thought that story was like I think that's like the best one so far. And it's especially like really cathartic when like he does kind of have his like last battle with the uh, Velociron and you get that sweet page where like he's making his way towards him as like he keeps using his powers to like corrupt more people and you just have that page of him like constantly coming towards him he's losing his limbs and he like rips off his own arm and then he takes that separate arm to like slash him like th- those pages in particular are, like really really good that was a cool sequence. yeah that was a great sequence yeah it's a really good page of him like lunging forward with like his severed arm holding a knife that he is holding in it's like it's teeth that he's lunging at Vilsaron. And then he grabs his arm and then, yeah, just slashes like Vilsaron with it. So, yeah, it's, it's some cool, like, uh, action sequences as well. Not a whole lot in the first. I mean, there are action sequences, but it's those third and four chapters are like where it seems like it's really taking the step towards being more of a battle series, uh, especially with this fifth chapter, too. I guess, like, the one thing about, like, that storyline that I... And then I think that it was not necessary. It was just this idea of like Lyra being uh, forced into prostitution and then yeah, this that wasn't threat great. of gang rape made against yeah. her. Like that, at least it didn't get too, but it's still just presenting the idea and like putting her in like this very uncomfortable situation. It's not a fun thing to read. Yeah, it's just not necessary. Like you didn't have to go. Yeah, we didn't need this threat of sexual violence. It didn't have to go as far as it did at the very least. 
I don't think so. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still think that story has a like pretty good emotional through line, especially with Lyra coming to the realization that obviously her her little brother is being like possessed and he's not actually alive. And he thinks back to like how her brother actually acted. Seeing him resurrected, she realizes that like he wasn't the kind of person who would want Lyra to like do the things that she's doing. Yeah, because he always used to say, you know, I don't want you to do it all for me. Like he was always concerned about her well-being and like that she was and over straining herself but like the controlled version by zealous ron is like saying hey do it for me do it for me you know so trying to manipulate her in that way but that's just not what her real brother would want and it's like a very disturbing page towards the end where like we're seeing like the bandages come off of her brother's head and we're seeing like you know very clearly like his head has been bashed in there's his brain exposed and there's like flies buzzing so just hammering it in that no her brother is dead and she has to accept that yeah, that's when she has the realization. Yeah, like you said, she accepts it. And yeah, I thought that was a pretty powerful moment. And you know what? I, I like that she got revenge on the guy who actually killed her brother that like manipulated that steel bar to like hit and crush his head. I thought that was cathartic. Yeah, it was cathartic that, you know, she got to have like her victory. She, I guess, <laughs> murdered the murderers of her brother with the pipe. So and then she's going to go out and wipe out the rest of the organization. But yeah, overall, again, I, I wasn't sure how to feel about this series at first. Like, I thought it was interesting and I thought it was, I thought it was like a good read. But like, this was another series that like didn't totally hook me in at first. But I think the more time I got to spend with Ikuru and like the more breadcrumbs we kind of get more about his past and like, like the more we learn about his motivations, the more I kind of, I could kind of get behind him as a character and he's not. Like, he, he felt more like a three-dimensional character, like, the more time we spent with him. And so I, I can get behind the idea of, like, reading more of this and, like, seeing where his journey goes. Yeah, he's clearly got a history that motivates his philosophy and why he acts the way it is and why he's doing what he's doing. So, yeah, I want to learn more about him. I think the introducing this character of Mu that he can't cure, but her disease is noble somehow is interesting. I would like to see how that'll add a new wrinkle to the series. And yeah, there's clearly just more to explore in terms of the backstory, in terms of like, again the millions of diseases that potentially could be encountered and i guess a lot of them again are like these like transformative diseases diseases are like turning people into other things but there's some other iterations like in the third fourth chapter is like velzeron's disease that like he can manipulate electric signals to puppet other people's i mean at that point it's like a superpower but you know you can play with the constant diseases to do it however you like so there's clearly potential like to have more creative type powers or problems to encounter it's a comic it's fine <laughs> yeah i will also say i think that there's some like grotesque and good way designs where it'd be like the king who is like partially transformed into the dragon uh the kind of final form of the zombies where like the parasitic like starfish tentacle monster thing inside of them is like peeking out of the infected person's mouth yeah is really creepy and uh then velceron's design is like super interesting it's like not because of the disease i don't know why he did this himself like he has all these needles that is like sticking out of his face and body like he's like a cenobite or something yeah he is like from <laughs> this guy's from hell so it's like a very interesting design so i think that the artist creates some very creative designs as well that uh very stand out in a disturbing way 
I really love the page turn in chapter five, I think, where, where he's fighting the collector guy and he sends out his like giant snake after him. And then immediately on the next page, he cuts him. Like, I really love that page turn. Yeah, it's like same poses and everything, but like one page to the next, like you have the, the immediacy of the serpent monster just immediately being Yeah, crushed. that was a good comedy beat. So that was good. Um, but again, I like the series more than I thought I would, and I wouldn't mind coming back to this eventually. Yeah, I am finding myself liking it more and more with each successor chapter and like getting a better understanding of Ikiru as a character and where he's coming from and the general like philosophy of the series. So yeah, I'm appreciating it and would like to see where it goes. So again, I do feel like it's, it's similar to something like FMA in terms of like kind of the ideas it's exploring. Uh, and definitely feels like art wise kind of like something of like a mid 2000s series of this type. But yeah, I think uh, it's a good execution of that kind of darker shown in action series. For sure. Um, now, the next series, I don't know how I really feel about it, honestly. <laughs> I will go right and say, generally, there haven't been that many series. I think I come right outright saying I dislike, but I I don't really like Tokyo Underworld. I'll just say that. That's totally fair. Yeah, Tokyo Underworld is another one of those kind of dead games of survival series. Basically, the premise of this one is that there is this underworld Tokyo, you know, beneath or in a separate dimension from the real Tokyo, where sinners or people who commit crimes are sent to after like falling from some place. And they are sent there to basically be punished and be hunted down and executed. And basically, they're forced to play this deck game uh, where they have to like kind of fight to survive to reach Tokyo Tower. And they can reach the president of the Tokyo Tokyo Underworld in Tokyo Tower. He'll give them like a pardon and send them back to the regular world. But the road there is, of course, fraught with like dangers and all these like dead game challenges. Like in the first couple chapters that we're reading here, like their challenge is like, well, they're stuck on the Rainbow Bridge, which is going to collapse in 19 minutes. And to get across, they have to like find a way to defeat this hulking, uh, murderous gatekeeper who is modeling himself after Benke, the historical character. But even more than that, he's modeling himself after an interpretation of Benkei from this TV drama. And they have to beat him the same way that version of Benkei was beaten in the TV drama. So basically their cast of characters is like this class that the teacher of that class, uh, Yabuchi, was being bullied. And a lot of students weren't doing anything to stop his bullying, uh, except for like our protagonists, who are twins, Yomi and Yami, who have like this twin synchronicity thing that they can feel each other's pain and how they're doing and stuff like that. The differences between twins is that Yomi is like a more physically weak kid, but he like stands up for right is right. Uh, and then Yami is like more of a punk kid who's protective of his brother. But and he has the most angst about like their parents mysteriously disappearing and leaving them. So he's protective of his brother, whereas uh, Yomi is like kind of moving on like more from that but uh, yeah that's a whole mystery thing if like their parents went missing five years ago and couldn't be found around tokyo so presumably they also got sent to the tokyo underworld as i'm sure is going to be the twist but in addition to that in their class is of course the guy who bullied uh yabuchi kashiwagi who's like just a bully and then there's this girl saikoa who is like the person who for some reason knows a lot about the tokyo underworld and knows how to figure shit out in the underworld and so she does the most of like being like hey this is what we got to do uh, we got to use these weapons we got to beat this 
this guy this way. So she's kind of the brains of the group of like, hey, this is how we survive this thing. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other like characters in this class. Like it's a class of like 20, 30 students. I think about like good chunk of like maybe a third of them have already been killed yeah. off. And then we have like basically a lot of characters who die or like characters who we just got introduced to and then we immediately see them get killed brutally. But then the characters who have been actually named, I think that are they'll probably be sticking around more long term. So we got introduced to like a girl who's in the archery club, a guy's from the soccer club, an aspiring idol girl, uh, the class rep, a bunch of, you know, character archetypes like that, you know, very broadly characterized archetypes. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the, the series of far is that the teacher, Yabuchi, he reached his breaking point. He didn't want to retire and live alone without, like, kind of, I guess, getting his revenge on the students who bullied him. So he basically condemns the entire class to death by committing suicide in front of them and saying that he blames all of them for his debt. And basically, the bus, like, swears off and falls off the bridge and then gets transported into Tokyo Underworld. And so now all the students have to compete in the set game. So yeah, it's like most of these kind of death games, Rival Game Death series, a lot of characters die as they try to figure out problems and survive and beat whatever enemies in their way. So that's basically what it is. And at the time of recording, they have defeated Benkei. They figure out that, oh, like in this drama that this Benkei guy is modeling himself after, he is beaten by like 10 arrows. But not only that, he needs to be beaten by like two arrows hitting him simultaneously at the end. And of course, wouldn't you know it, the twins who can sense each other's movements and how they're feeling, of course, they'll be able to simultaneously at the same time uh, hit the guy with the arrows and defeat him. So they do that. And that's where we're at. So, yeah, I mean, again, I just think that this is very similar to other survival game type series. I do think at least I have my issues with this series. I'm just going to put that out there. I do think this is better than the last Death Game series we had to talk about in one of our last Savile Pubs episodes, whatever we had to talk about in Manga Mo, but that's also not saying much. I don't know. I think the characters are even flatter here, and it's just more like exploitative and like trying to be grim dark and it. Energy in like a juvenile way. Like they have some pointlessly gross stuff. Like one of the first people who dies is like this girl who we don't really, uh, we didn't, weren't introduced to is not, not named before, but it's this girl who like we are meant to see, we're forced to see like her panty shots. Like she's like falling over and then her legs are getting called off. Then later on, there's this joke that's made a repeat out of the class rep repeatedly pissing herself. And like we see like the pool of piss, like, soaking her underwear and skirt and then we have like all these like over the top island that's for like these chumps that we really have not gotten to know at all so it's just like fodder to be killed off like a guy gets a shovel to his chest like a guy gets like his head cough uh in half of a shovel bizarrely the one person of color in the class is the first yeah, to die what the fuck which is like what you had meant put it put in the effort to have a person of color in your series and they they're the first to die they do you not know the jokes about people criticizing how the black guy always dies first in horror movies it's like what why would you that made me feel that i don't know that was not i didn't feel very comfortable reading that i was like are we really doing this like unironically that's kind of weird and fucked up honestly yeah so it's just a lot of like super tried implications of these like horror tropes like this exploitation type tropes that i just find super cringy and tiresome (laughs) honestly because they've just seen them so much and it's not like surprising in any way it's not 
uh, horrific in a, a way that really shocks or surprises. It just feels super trying to be provocative without having like anything of substance behind it. It's too interested in just shocking readers as much as possible. Again, being juvenile and how it has characters die and then exploiting female characters in grotesque ways while they're being murdered or under threat of violence and whatnot. So I just found that very dislikable. Yeah, I'm... Like I said, I still think this is better than that last Death Game manga we talked about, which I don't even remember the name of. It was honestly that forgettable. It was whatever we had to talk about for Mangamo a few months ago. I forget. I, I already forget if that was even this year or not. It probably was. That was towards the end of December that we were talking about. But I think I don't remember anything in that series like making me roll my eyes in the same way or making me disgusted of like just how basic it was being with like its exploitation. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Because in, in that series... I think that it just was, again, just it didn't have like very interestingly realized characters and very obvious betrayal twist in it. So it was it was rotely written. But like in this one, it is just like trying to really sell itself on like this violence. And it's just not working because it's like, well, of course, like in a lot of horror things, like the characters are acting so stupid. And a lot of the characters that are dying in front are characters we don't really get to know. And so we don't really have a connection to. And so the appeal is supposed to be like the overtime way they die but it's not really fun violence it's just like grotesque and oftentimes it has this utter creepy factor or utter gross factor of like again the girl pissing herself or like focusing on panty shots of this girl before she gets her legs cut off there was no reason for that i'm just like we don't need it like this artist can't even bother with drawing things in a good fan servicey way or like a way that's like attractively horny like it's just not even it's just there's no sense of appeal in the art in that way. So it's like it doesn't even succeed in, in trying to titillate in that way. No, yeah, it just kind of feels like we're just it feels like we're just kind of checking off a list of tropes that you're just kind of required to have in like anything horror related. And yeah, I mean, um, I don't know, like, I don't think I really like the series that much either. Yeah, the premise is also built upon just like a very mean-spirited idea of like this teacher out of spite committing suicide in front of his students and then condemning the entire class even the people who helped him to die yeah like yami and yomi don't deserve this at all the twins do not deserve that they stood up for him and it's like the bystanders don't deserve it either like like the teacher the victim supposedly is not likable so the premise of gets all these characters into this world into this deck game is not built on a foundation where that is like super sympathetic other than like oh well now these characters are put in an affair situation but like a lot of the characters aren't likable to begin with besides the twins and the main girl and even the twins are not that interesting of characters their whole gimmick is like oh we can feel each other's pain but otherwise they don't have that much personality beyond that and really it's like Saikawa the girl who seems to know a lot about the Tokyo Underworld and like how to survive there she's the most interesting character and the series might be better if it was more about her and she was the central protagonist because she's the one who was also getting the most shit done figuring the most shit out there's like one one interesting character in like this cast of dozens and it's like well that's not enough to keep me around the only thing i could think about while reading this especially when like we started getting introduced to like more of the class that i guess was around at the tokyo tower when like kashiwagi and his thug friends or whatever were just like bullying the shit out of uh, yabuchi again when this series started introducing like more characters 
out of nowhere. Like, all I could think was, man, like, these archetypes feel like the kind of characters that would be introduced in the Kentashina Hara manga, except there's no irony here. They're just, like, those archetypes. Like, th- these are the kind of character archetypes that, like, Kentashina Hara would make fun of. Because they're very generic archetypes of people, and in particular in, like, school manga. Like, you have, like, people who, like, specialize in the specific club, so their whole personality is that thing. You have do. the like, influencer. You know, guys in the soccer club, <laughs> they, they have soccer club. Yeah, there's this influencer guy, a cat-teamed influencer, so he, you know, is dressed up in his persona, even at school, I guess. You know, he doesn't get the, the merits uh, for not dressing in uniform, I guess. And, um, yeah, I guess he, because he's online a lot he knows about like how guns work because he plays video games and stuff so yeah i guess you have like these very broad again very broad character archetypes and then they get slotted into like oh well this is your niche so do your niche like the archery girl she knows archery so she's asked to shoot arrows but then at least like she's not a super skilled archer like she's just a novice to the club but that's the thing is like all the characters are like oh they're defined by like what their hobby or affiliation is and the twins are defined by like being twins and like oh what do twins are much like each other and they can feel each other's pains and stuff so yeah so Saikawa who's like kind of the only one who's not defined by being like an archetype stands out as just being an interesting character because she like just is a character who like knows how to survive and she has a mystery behind her of like well, how do you know all that stuff about the Tokyo Underworld? So that's what makes her stand out. Like she's not defined by being something else like these other characters. Yeah, I don't know if I really like this series that much either. Honestly, like, look, I've, I've talked about this before. I have an inclination for trash. I like to dumpster dive, okay? So I kind of appreciate it on that front. I recognize that this is trashy as fuck, and it's easily the worst series that we're talking about on this episode. But like... Mm-hmm. I kind of enjoy that a little bit, but I also do recognize that, like, outside of my specific tastes, this series really isn't good, and it is gratuitous in, like, all the worst ways, and in the most, like, cringy ways as well. Like, this series just wants to be edgy for the sake of being edgy. Like, there's there's nothing here. Yeah. And honestly, I'm glad that I at least got to read up to a point where they got to finish off the guy acting like Ben K. I'm at least glad that I got to read up to the end of that portion of the series, because I... I don't think I'm going to come back to this. I don't think I really have any interest in seeing like where this goes, honestly. Yeah, same here. It's a rare thing that I don't find like anything of interest in a series that I find unique. But like with this one, I just don't think it succeeds at even utilizing its gimmick effectively with the whole twins can feel each other's pain thing. And the characters surrounding them are just so broad and thin in characterization. And again, the most interesting character is Saikoa, who is interesting just because there's clearly a history to her that allows her to know like how to exploit the environment and survive these debt games. So, I mean, that leads you to want to know, well, why does she know how to do all these things? But that's not enough. That one character is not enough to keep me interested in this series, which is built upon like just slaughtering a lot of these like nameless bodies uh, time and again, and then just like these very basically defined characters, like who are who just have nothing else going for them. But Besides being defined as liking a certain thing or being a certain thing. Yeah, this is not something I say very often, but like this series needs like a little irony. Like this series does way too many things like unironically that I feel like in other media, like like you mentioned, are lauded as being like, you know, really cheesy or stupid and like things that like people have been complaining about when it comes to horror media for decades at this point. Yeah. 
But uh, look, if you like trashy death game stuff, maybe this is up your alley. But otherwise, if you're not in the mood for that kind of stuff and you want something more than that, something with actual nuance, like you're not going to get it here. Yeah, you can do better when it comes to these type of death game series, for sure. For sure. I'm actually really excited to read more of the last thing we're going to talk about. Yeah, speaking of dead game series that do better and have more interesting twists and premises to them, we've got the Game Devil by Kakunoshin Futusawa, the most recently added Manga Plus series. There's only one chapter out at the time of recording. And this is a really interesting one about a young manga artist who's struggling to make his debut. He's working as an assistant to another mangaka, and he's been rejected many times on his series and getting his debut work out there because he's really fixated on making a story with this character that he loves the most a black knight character but the problem is the reason he keeps getting rejected is both because like his editor feels you know hero stories aren't in vogue right now but also his black knight character is very similar to the protagonist of a character in this very popular video game the game devil which as it turns out the entire concept for the game devil was something that he came up with as a kid uh, to help out his friend who was like once me and not very confident and he drew this manga for his friend about this black knight fighting this big boss devil character and saying like this black knight hero would be a hero that would protect him and that friend would grow up after they parted ways in their childhood to basically develop that story concept into this game devil game that is so popular and has this reputation as a game for the final boss the game devil being so tough to beat it's like the toughest video game boss in history millions have tried to beat it but no one has succeeded but yeah so Roku is kind of feeling this place where like everyone he knows in his personal life seems to be succeeding in their careers or he's kind of just stuck in place and like the big idea that he like really motivated him to want to become a manga artist and the story he really wanted to tell that story in a, in a way has been taken from him and he can't really find his own path forward but in addition to him like kind of struggling with that at the same time, like the game devil, there's a big meetup that happens in Akihabara for all the players. And at that meetup, like Sukasuki basically announces that the game so far has just been like kind of a prelude and then there's going to be a big update. And then the update happens and for some reason, uh, like a bunch of pixels start manifesting out of people's phones and they form like these giant pixel monsters in the city that are real. And when these pixel monsters hit like buildings and are people it turns them into pixelated characters too it turns the people they hit in particular into like npcs so roku kind of sees this encountering this and he tries to like protect a little kid kind of in a way that mirroring an image that he drew in his black knight manga but you know obviously he's like going up against this giant like ogre pixel monster where he like has like a stick so it doesn't look like it's gonna work out for him but all of a sudden, out of his phone, manifest his Black Knight character, who is manifested to protect him. And that's kind of where the chapter leaves off. But yeah, I mean, the series really stands out for its use of pixel art. Oh my art. god, yeah. And the opening color spread is really gorgeous in how the pixel art is, and like the red-hued coloring of it all uh, is just really, really beautiful. But also, like, the blending of pixel art with, like, the regular manga art, like, when the big twist happens and the pixel monsters get manifested 
manifested uh, in the square uh, is really interesting in its contrast. And yeah, it looks super cool to have like these melding of styles in the same world and seeing how that interacts, how those different types of characters interact. And in addition to that, I think that Roku as a character is very compelling. I think it's very relatable, his feeling of like, you know, he has this dream he's working towards and everyone's like supportive of his dream, but he's feeling like he's stuck in place while everyone else is like succeeding in their careers. And he's like, did I make a mistake? Am I doing the wrong things? I really want to succeed and make this particular story, but I can't make it. So I feel like that's definitely drawn from very real feelings and experiences, probably from his personal artists or just observations, very real feelings, I think a lot of artists, uh, myself included, have felt. So yeah, I, I really related a lot to Roku and his story. And then also just the interesting dynamic and mystery of like what's going on with his old friend Sugasugi. Like why did he take his story and then turn it into this big thing? That kind of gives me kind of 20th century boys wise things of like this thing that they connected uh, with our childhood is kind of taken and built up into like this bigger thing that kind of consumes the culture. So that's another really interesting wrinkle to it. And yeah, I'm just curious to see how the story turns out. It looks like it'll be more of a battle type series uh, with the Black Knight kind of manifesting to protect Roku and finding out these pixel monsters. And we'll see like what is Sugusugi's aim of like trying to unleash these monsters on the world and turn the world into a pixel world. I, I could probably guess that he feels like in the world of games, he has more control. So turning the world into a game and then like people who are like not like relevant to his life in NPCs might be like this whole big meta thing of like, oh, no, this is a world I control and only the people that I matter are like characters and everyone else is an NPC. So I can imagine that being like a big twist to it. But uh, yeah, it's just a lot of interesting ideas and interesting relationships set up in the premise here and uh i really enjoyed it as a individual chapter i'm interested in seeing where it's going yeah um i feel like we can't not bring up your great comparison that you made on twitter oh yeah i mean it is like uh time paris ghost rider meets pixels uh, a little bit of sao in there so yeah i think if again if you were compelled to tpg by like it's look at like a struggling mangaka i mean i think roku is a character you'll really get behind obviously this whole idea of like fighting pixel monsters and how pixel monsters affect like the real world quote unquote is like that movie pixels which itself is very much a ripoff of that old treehouse of horse uh no futurama segment from the intelligence <laughs> yeah. of interest it was very much the same thing and then yeah i mean this whole idea of like a video game creator trapping people in this scenario where they have to live their life in a video game or as a video game like in this case the difference is that rather than transport people into a video game world and trap them there he's brought the video game world into the real world and transforming the real world into a video game so you have all those elements there so it's an interesting combination of ideas that uh, makes for a person that stands out especially because of its creative use of pixel art and very beautiful use of pixel art and colors especially Oh my god, yeah, the the like the pixel art is like the thing that impresses me about this series the most so far. And like you said, the way it integrates with the manga art, which I don't think the manga art is bad, but I, I do think it is like very simplistic in a lot of places. But I, I think it works for what it is, though. Yeah, I think it has a clearer personality to the style, but it is like much more loosely yeah, drawn. Yeah. But the pixel art, yeah, definitely does stand out in how it's rendered and how it contrasts with the regular art. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I guess you could argue makes the pixel art and how it combines with the manga art like that much more effective, probably. But yeah, I really like this so far. 
and not much to really say about like the first chapter because I clearly the, the story has like just gotten started, but I think it's managed to like make a really strong impression and like I don't know. I, I I do I do really want to see where this goes. Like I'm actually really excited to like read more of this. Yeah, I thought it had a really strong first chapter. Uh, one of the strongest I've read this year. So I'm very very connected to it really immediately, and I was really impressed by the art, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where it'll take the concept in the future chapters. I feel like out of all the manga plus stuff, I'm mm, this is really tough because like really other than Tokyo Underworld, I really liked everything. And like I have a good chance of like coming back to basically everything we read except for that one series. Yeah, I think that the highlights are definitely Ghostbusters Asylum and Game Devil. But Ikaru and Skeleton Double are also very, very solid. Those are like a strong second for me anyway. Yeah, or rather... They're tied for third, I guess. Yeah, that but, makes more sense. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, overall, at least they were a very eclectic batch, you know, different premises in each one. But yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if Angle Plus continue as new series and uh, what other types of new series uh, start debuting on the service from here on out, because I appreciate the variety of titles. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot to mention this with Ikaru, but um, as excited as I am to get more Jump Plus stuff, I am still really worried that the people that they have working on these series, like not on the Viz side, obviously, like through Metabang and all these other companies, like I'm really afraid that like the more series they pick up, the more their workforce is going to be stretched thin. That is kind of the one thing I'm worried about. Uh, and uh, what I forgot to mention with Ikaru, I really feel like, and I'm not sure if it was like this in the second chapter, because I, I, I didn't notice this until like chapter two, but I feel like there were like weirdly too many fonts being used. I don't know if you picked up on that. I don't think I picked up on too many fonts being used it didn't like stand out to me that's interesting yeah i don't know i I just felt like i felt like in chapter two specifically i noticed like oh there's like a lot of different fonts being used for like certain characters and moments and stuff like i'm pretty sure there were like more than two fonts being used in that chapter in particular yeah look through again there's definitely a lot of different fonts being used like specific characters get their own individual font there's a different font for yelling as there is for normal speaking uh yeah there's there is a lot actually yeah so i thought that was kind of distracting um i don't think i've noticed that in like any of the other series i've read thus far i just i just thought it was interesting that was like a specific thing i picked up on with that series which is like yeah that's kind of distracting now that i like noticed it now i can't unnotice it Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know like i said i'm really hoping that like the quality of these series doesn't like decrease but i mean i guess we'll have to wait and see that that's the one thing i'm worried about otherwise i am happy that we're getting more jump plus titles available yeah and before we head out of the show, let's head into our community shoutouts. For more thoughts on Tokyo Demon Bride Story and Genki and Gluna, check out Manga Crash's video on it, as well as the recent Multiworld City Manga Club episode, where the hosts of both shows, they talk about the series, what they like about them, uh, not as enthusiastic about Tokyo Demon Bride Story as much as Gink and Gluna in both cases, but a very good discussions of them in general. And uh, yeah, if so you want other thoughts and opinions on the series, check out those channels in that podcast. And recently, it was Cartoon Network's 30th anniversary 
history and it was a time for celebration. Some people made some cool things to celebrate the occasion. My good from Avader from the Animation Revolution forums. On his letter dropped, he wrote a list of the top 10 Cartoon Network originals of all time, his favorite top shows, and it's a very good list. Avader, you know, knowing him a long time, I already knew what his number one was when he like <laughs> announced it on Twitter. I was like, hmm, I have a feeling what's going to be on this list and what's going to be at the top. And sure enough, he did not surprise. But, you know, he wrote very wonderfully about what makes all these shows stand out, why they're personally his favorites, their impact on the network, what they represent about the network. And I think it was a really wonderful read and really encapsulates just his love for Cartoon Network and these shows. And I really appreciated reading it. But speaking of, you know, celebrating cartoons and classic cartoons, I really enjoyed Nick Knack's episode recently that talked about Cartoon Kablooey, a compilation of UPA and Paramount shorts that Nickelodeon aired in the early 90s. It had like a lot of classic characters like J.L. Boing Boing, Mr. Magoo. A lot of fun shorts, and it was fun just hearing him go through the histories of both Animation Studios, Filmation, and Paramount. Why the Nickelodeon package of the cartoons didn't have some really popular characters like Popeye and the package, you know, how the syndication deals worked, and just those histories of the studios, histories like how those cartoons would air on television and how they ended up airing on Nickelodeon. So, yeah, I... Really just enjoy any time someone really goes into classic animation history and then history of animation on television, how that changed and evolved in terms of how these shorts were broadcasts. And I really appreciated this look back at kind of this just obscure little programming compilation of these shorts. And, you know, there's been a lot of things to celebrate about animation, but also a lot of worries, obviously, with what's happening in the industry. You know, big cuts over at Warner's side. And that's making people wonder how that will affect the anime industry in particular. And wouldn't you know it? We asked the questions. Someone's answered the call because there's a new answer man. Kim Morrissey Franklin, she has taken up the reins of Answer Man for Anime News Network and in her first column basically addressed the situation of the cuts at HBO Max and Netflix and how that may affect anime production in particular. And her assessment is that it probably won't affect anime production as much as it's affecting North American animation production where a lot of cuts are happening to original projects. There may be a decline from made for streaming anime but like anime as just a kind of product on these streaming services is still pretty lucrative and valuable to them so it will be still an investment that they'll probably continue to make but maybe we'll not see as much and you know it probably won't directly affect the anime industry in the same way because you know a lot of the productions being made are not like under the wing of you know Warner Brothers or Netflix like they are partners with the studios so they wouldn't be directly affected by layoffs and budget cuts and all that but i'm really happy I'm, i think it's really cool to see the answerman column return after many year absence after justin retired from it a few years ago and kim is a great person for the job with her industry experience and knowledge so very very much looking forward to continuing to keep up with that 
And that basically does it for shout outs I want to give on this episode. However, I also want to kind of shout out a recent guest appearance I had on the Tanami Faithful podcast where we discussed, you know, speaking of Cartoon Network faves created by Cartoon Network alum, we talked about the season finale, the final couple episodes of Primal Season 2. And it was a great discussion. Primal was just on fire. This entire season was literally on fire in the finale. (laughs) And it was just a joy to watch. And it was just so much fun to talk about, like, just what made the show, makes the show just such a standout in terms of animated storytelling. And just the rich development that they gave Sphere as a character. And just the epicness of that Colosseus arc. Like, it was really, really fun to discuss the show. And I was glad to talk it with the cool folks at the 2FP podcast. So, yeah. Check out all these cool stuff that I recommended. And it's definitely more to recommend in future podcasts. But until then, I think we'll head out into the wrap-up of our show. For sure. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening to this episode. Uh, I had a lot of fun, once again, going through all the latest Simul Pups that have started up recently. And yeah, hopefully next time on the podcast, I think we can say this. We're going to be doing another Jump Stop podcast. We're going to be covering, once again, another canceled Shonen Jump manga with Red Sprite by Tomohiro Yagi. We had Maxion as well as uh, my good friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime podcast. And uh, I thought it was a good discussion, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. Yeah, it was a good discussion on Cancel Jump comic that going into it, there is going to be some differences of opinions, surprisingly, <laughs> but and I think that made for a good discussion. You know, you rarely have seen Maxi so negative, I feel, on these Cancel series as the two that we covered this year. Yeah, yeah. I think we talked about it off mic, but I, I think... I think at some point when it comes to these canceled series, we need to have Maxi on for something good eventually to make up for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think they are long overdue to read something good for the show and and talk about something they like. Uh, we'll, We'll get to that when we get to that eventually. But until then, yes, please look forward to our next episode where we talk about Red Sprite from Tomohiro Yagi. And yeah, until then, uh, we're going to let you guys know where you can find us, uh, starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumriyasha on Twitter. It's Lumriyasha on a variety of places like Amazon, Annielist, Letterboxd, where there's a Lumriyasha. You can find me there by the name. You can also read my reviews on MongoRance.com. A lot of books coming in. A lot of reviews planning to go out. Look for more in there. So you can find the other podcasts I do. Lum Squad, the podcast dedicated to the wonderful Wacky World. We're going to talk classics, sci-fi, ronka, manga, Yurisayatsura. We have a lot to talk about the series these days. What with the newest volumes of the manga released by Viz Media, plus the movies available on Crunchyroll and from Discotech, and of course the new anime series currently airing thanks to High Dive and we're just so excited to cover that new series to continue to explore the original manga the older anime and it gets re-released by Discotech next year. There's just so much to talk about with Ryo Sigatsura and the works from Ruka Takahashi right now so if you want some great discussion on a comedy manga classic definitely listen to us. You can find us on Twitter at Lambda 
Lumpscare Squad. You can find us on YouTube by searching for our channel name, Lump Squad. You can find us every podcast platform you can think of, being Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor. You name it, we're probably on it. We're also cross-posting episodes on the Margaret's feed and post episodes early, oftentimes a lot early on the Margaret's Patreon. And if you like the art I make, the thumbnails I draw for our podcast, or the illustrations and animations I make in journal, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colta. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host to produce a lot of my own other stuff that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com, where over there you can click on the podcast page and uh, basically check out everything I'm doing, uh, including stuff I'm not a part of anymore, but I still want to link to anyway, or other guest spots I've done on other podcasts over the years. But either way, again, coltoncorner.wordpress.com. That's my personal blog if you want to check out any of my other stuff. But as for Manga Mavericks and where you can find us, you can find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where you'll find every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you'll have access to select episodes of the podcast before anyone else. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited ahead of time before we're supposed to put it up on the main feed, we'll put it up on the $2 tier for our patrons to listen to first. Admittedly, though, that really depends on the schedule and what we have done at any given time. Uh, so really, if you want more reliable content, admittedly, you should sign up for our $5 tier where you'll get a new bonus podcast at the end of every month, including our latest bonus podcast where we had our good friend Maxi Bernard on from Friendship Ever Victory to basically talk their thoughts on Gaku Hote from Nobuaki Inoki and Takashi Obata, as well as Nobuaki Inoki's prototype Gaku Hote one-shot created before the original series. Basically, think of that as a part two to our original Gaku Hote episode of Manga Mavericks. It's a real fun time. Uh, basically, don't read Gaku Hote, just, just listen to us talk about it. That's all you really need. So go listen to that and the rest of our bonus podcasts up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash at the $5 tier. Basically, that's really the best way for you guys to support us and everything we do on the show here because everything we make on our Patreon goes back to keeping up both the website and the podcast. So basically, everything we make really does make a difference. Uh, so again, patreon.com slash if you want to sign up. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks, where we upload different excerpts of our podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Once again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of the cyberpubs we covered this episode? Are you reading anything that you want to tell us about or maybe that you want us to cover on the show? Send us an email about manga or the podcast or really anything. We love getting emails from you guys. Once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, but especially on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you can do this kind of thing. If you leave us a rating and a review it really helps the visibility of our show and uh you know just in general we love getting feedback from you guys uh whether it be positive or negative uh that way we can use that positive or negative feedback to uh make the show as good as possible but all right i think that's going to about do it for this episode thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of manga mavericks this has been episode 217 we'll see you guys next time for episode 218 bye guys sayonara <laughs>